everybody back in Los Angeles and uh, I haven't had much sleep. All right. So I figure I've had no sleep, couldn't, couldn't sleep on the plane. So I figure I, I should do a live stream even before I clean up, before I take a shower, before I put all my stuff away. All right. I'm back in Los Angeles. I figure if I do a live stream when I'm incredibly sleep deprived, there's a very good chance that uh, I'll be more honest. And also, you want to strike while the impressions are hot. So when I was taking the bus to the Sydney airport about 16 hours ago, all right, everything around me looked completely normal because I quickly became acclimatized to Sydney. So everything in Sydney, everything around me looked completely normal. While almost three months ago, when I landed in Sydney, I had all these observations that I was firing off on Twitter and Facebook because it was different. So, too, I get back to L.A. and certain things just jump out at me. So the number one thing is how much less comfortable life is in Los Angeles or any big multicultural city in North America as far as I'm aware, I'm just going to extrapolate out from my own individual experience of flying into LAX. It just, it's just not, not a terribly comfortable experience. For one thing, half the population in Los Angeles doesn't speak English, right? So when, when half the people in your city don't speak English, it's not going to be nearly as comfortable a situation. Uh, second, there's much more palpable sense of, of tension because there's apparently nothing that unites people in Los Angeles. Like, we have nothing in common, right? I have virtually nothing in common with people in Los Angeles who, most people in Los Angeles who don't speak English. I don't, we, we live in the same approximate geographic area, but what do we share? We, we, can't, we can't really communicate. So there are just so many distinctive subcultures and it's just so multicultural that that uh, there's just so much diversity that it just feels like we have nothing in common maybe that's just my my sleeplessness speaking maybe this is just idiosyncratic to me but that's what jumped out at me as i, I landed at lax another thing that jumps out at me is that when you go through customs or, or you deal with, with the government in america you frequently seem to be treated or viewed as the enemy while in Australia, there's much more of a sense that the government is on your side. So much more tension, much less comfort, I noticed, arriving back in Los Angeles. And uh, much more fear, right? Because you don't seem to have, you know, a whole heck of a lot in common. And so when people are really unfathomably different from you, such as you can't even speak the same language and you don't have shared cultural uh, uh, experiences, values, aspirations, where, where we're just so different from each other. Like we just have all these various tribes in, in Los Angeles. Uh, that that in and of itself will tend to provoke fear. Then when you have astronomical crime rates, particularly jumping up since, since 2020, yeah, m much more of a, a fearful experience, much more of a sense of being on guard, of having to watch your stuff. So uh, on the plane over from, from Sydney to L.A., I had the great fortune to sit next to this lovely, attractive uh, German woman 
And she talked about uh, in Germany, in the big cities, yeah, you have to watch your stuff. And she was kind of surprised when she came to Sydney for a few weeks that uh, a friend in Sydney said, no, you, you don't need to watch your stuff. It's highly unlikely that anyone's going to steal it. So, yeah, there's more of a sense of fear, you know, looking around, you know, wondering, you know, who's going to try to rip me off. Also, another thing I'm noticing, don't know if there's any statistical evidence for this, but there seem to be a whole heck of a lot more people in wheelchairs in Los Angeles per capita. So I'm wondering if that's true. And if it is true, why would there be a lot more people in Los Angeles in Los, what more people in wheelchairs in Los Angeles as compared to Sydney, right? Do I live in Australia permanently? No, I've spent uh, five of the last 12 months in Australia, but I, I live in Los Angeles. But I, I love getting back to Australia as often as I can. But I, I'm thinking if it's true that there are more people in wheelchairs in, in Los Angeles, and that can be incredibly disruptive for other people. So I, I'm sure it's its own you know, trouble being being in a wheelchair and trying to navigate streets and sidewalks in Los Angeles that are frequently cracked and, and messed up. Uh, some some wheelchairs, yeah, they have cup holders. But I'm thinking if it's true that there are far higher percentage of Los Angelinos in wheelchairs than people in Sydney, I'm wondering if it's one, like untreated diabetes, right? People who aren't treating their diabetes, so they, they lose... The, the function of some of their limbs, such as the lower limbs, such as the feet. Also, uh, added recklessness by certain segments of the population. All right, so we, we particularly see all sorts of crimes and deaths of exuberance since George Floyd died. So massive increase in traffic deaths and pedestrian deaths, as well as murder and general mayhem in, in the United States since George Floyd uh, died. So... Uh, maybe there's there's a higher percentage of the population that tends to be reckless. And what, what might go along with that, maybe I'm sure there's a higher percentage of the population gets severely injured in violence. So I don't know if that, that jumps out to you if you spend any time in, in Los Angeles, you know, just all the people who, who are in wheelchairs. And then that, like that added sense of tension. So as compared to when I lived in, in Auburn, California, or when I lived in, in the Napa Valley, there wasn't that palpable sense of, of tension and fear and not having almost anything in common all right, with, with the people around you. That, that's what jumped out at me. So I don't know if, if you have this experience with, with live streamers, but do you ever like check out a live stream and they're just like, coming at you full force like you check out the live stream in the beginning and they're just they're just dropping you know truth pills they're, they're dropping wisdom they're, they're dropping clarity it's just like coming all over you right i mean it's just coming hot and heavy i mean it's just a a, a thick load of, of wisdom that, that's just like covering you and it's like whoa and and you think he you know, wow, this is incredibly intense. I mean, PPP, right, and Andy Worski, I mean, they bring it at such an enormous level of energy and and intensity and, and hype, uh, which, you know, I, I just, I have been too lazy to perform at that level because when you perform at that level, yes, yeah, it's, it's much more compelling, but it's also much harder to think clearly and to not lie. When you hype something, you're lying. 
right? It, it's not, you know, an out and out damaging lie, but it is still deceptive. It is a subset of lying. So, all right. So you, you check out the live stream, right? It's just coming at you hot and heavy. And you just feel engorged with the, with the wisdom, with the political insights, the social insights, the, the self-help tips, the, the clarity. And then and then you find the content maker is just kind of dribbling away into being a content taker, right? You tune in to a live streamer to get his perspective, all right? And this this content maker, right, you, you have some hope at the beginning of the stream. This content maker is going to you know make something original and then the stream just devolves into playing excerpts from 10 other blokes so the the content maker way too often just devolves into the content taker and they're reading dreary articles and they're playing clips that half the time are not queued up correctly right and they're doing a live stream pretending Right, that's the premise of what they're doing, that they're giving you something unique and special coming from you know their brain, their heart. But really, it, it's just this melange of other people's content. And I mean, some people don't appreciate getting like face blasted on, on a live stream with you know 10 other blokes' content, you know, when the whole pretense is that there's some sort of special relationship going on between you and the live streamer, and they're gonna bring their whole self, their heart, their body, their their mind, their their soul. You know, their religious convictions, their cultural, political convictions, their their emotions, like it's all going to be poured into the stream. And instead, you're just getting face blasted by 10 other blokes. And then they're playing like lengthy excerpts from Fox News. And you think like, what the hell here, guys? Right? I too did to get like one distinctive opinion. Like that was the whole premise of this relationship with, with this live streamer. And this is not what I signed up for. I didn't sign up to be face blasted by 10 randos, all right, with, with clips that aren't even queued up correctly. Uh, look, I have been able to overcome streaming interruptus because of cranberry extract. I mean, that's how I'm able to give you know, these long, sustained streams. Um, it's not just dribble, drip, drip, dribble, long, awkward pause dribble, drip, drip. No, I mean, I take that cranberry extract. Now I'm able to, I'm able to stream, right? I, I'm able to come from the heart. I, I, I'm able to tell you something fair dinkum. So anyway, on the plate, I got to sit next to a, a German woman, young, attractive German woman. And, you know, we get to talking. How do you like Sydney? Where are you from in Germany? You know, what, what's that, that big city like? Uh, how about that quality of life in Sydney? What do you do? What do I do? And then I talked to her about situationism. I said, this is an idea I'm really excited about situationism. We start talking about, of course, World War One, World War Two, uh, German military history. And I share with her, you know, the insights of John M. Doris into the, the power of situationism. And I said, there was this one German thinker who was incredibly profound on situationism, Carl Schmitt. And she'd never heard of Carl Schmitt. And so I tell her that uh, the sovereign is he who decides the state of exception. All right, that's uh, a Carl Schmidt comment. I mean, Carl Schmidt was powerful with the aphorisms, and this girl was so nice. 
I mean, I, I think she had a standard deviation in IQ on me. And, and how could I tell that? Because she was so empathic. She had such excellent manners. Like she was just, she was just grace, right? She just moved and spoke in just pure grace. It was just such a, a bracha. It was such a blessing to have this opportunity to sit next to her. She was just lovely, just absolutely lovely. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to have a woman who could speak German and, and you could you could have her read to you in the original German, like she could speak to you in perfect German diction, like the the, the most exciting insights from Carl Schmidt. So I could tell her, sovereign is he who decides the state of exception. So I was explaining that to her. And and I was thinking, wow, wouldn't that be wonderful if she could like repeat that back to me in German? I didn't ask her to do that, right, on, on this plane flight. I, I thought I'd take it out slow. And and then I talked to her about the concept of the political. The concept of the political is the friend-enemy distinction where the enemy rises into view and the enemy is he who has the ability to annihilate you. Right. I would love to hear these Carl Schmidt aphorisms like said back to me in the you know beautiful original German. I mean, is that bad? I mean, I, I'm not the type of bloke who, you know, likes to go around fetishizing women and, you know, imagining them speaking, you know, Carl Schmidt aphorisms to me in, in perfect German. But I, I explained to her about uh, the concept of the political. I explained to her about the state of exception. And then I said, well, uh, of course, you know, Carl Schmidt also had entered into an erotic state of exception where he, he felt released from the moral strictures of Roman Catholicism and bourgeois morality. And she was like interested in the erotic state of exception. When you take a moral holiday, so let's say you go to a different place where not many people know you. And when you take this holiday, you let go all, you know, your traditional moral strictures. All right. And, you know, you let go all of your restraints, you know, particularly in the sexual arena. And, you know, you just go for the gusto without you know, traditional concerns about God and holiness and maintaining your good name in your religious community. All right. That's a moral holiday, which is an erotic state of exception. So. Uh, wouldn't it be great? I mean to have, have a German-speaking girlfriend who could just read Carl Schmidt to you like in perfect Hebrew. I, maybe there's something weird about me, right? You know, maybe there's something off here that this is what I just find incredibly exciting. But I'm only human, and I've got no filter, right? This is coming to you. This is unfiltered, uncensored. This is raw dogging this this live stream because i've had no sleep could not sleep on on the plane and so i'm just letting it rip no thoughts of repercussions here we go and called to speaking with mickey Kaus. fellow uh which uh, meant that it was sort of trendy gibberish subsidized by the macarthur foundation and uh it said that uh uh being blonde is a, is sort of a, a euphemism for being white yeah it probably is and that they enjoy a special status yeah because men seem to like blondes more and the you know, the, the, what she didn't say is black men probably like blondes more, too. Uh, but um, it, it, so it was like a, it, an article just when you thought it was going to get to a point, it descended into gibberish about sex status and gender. And we're going to continue this conversation. No, have it now. You have a op-ed in The New York Times. <laughs> say what you want to say. Anyway, go ahead. Um, well, the reason I liked it is um, 
Steve Saylor has, has, he started writing about this, I guess around the time of George Floyd, he calls it World War Hair. Uh, and he had read about, um, I don't know, 100 op-eds and editorials written by um, all of these black ladies who had been you know, heavily put, you know, promoted at newspapers and into journalism after, as part of the racial reckoning. And his point was, um, you, know, you would think if, if black women have been kept down and prevented from, from sharing their ideas and their thoughts in, in op-ed pieces and in newspapers and in important academic journals um, and on college campuses for 400 years, what great ideas have they come up with? <laughs> and what he noticed is they really want to talk about their hair. Um, and wow, he has a lot of examples of this. This The allegation of um, um, the, the microaggression, which is about the only thing black people can come up with these days to prove um, vicious white supremacy in our country because people are really, really, really nice to black people. Um, and liberals won't won't brook any criticism of a black person. That, that tends not to lead to good behavior, by the way. Um, and I haven't even raised kids, but never ever being allowed to criticize someone just because of the color of their skin, not a good idea, um, in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> and he's found so so what 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 can they come up with to to prove that they're being discriminated against and these it's all of these apocryphal stories about white people asking to touch their hair um i've been around black people went to high school friends with you've met her um in la black gal um and that's back to high school and college i've never heard of i have never seen i do not believe white people are constantly asking to touch black people's hair this is just gotta come up with something but you know they want to do it Aaron. <laughs> they, just, they just don't ask it. I, mean, I have the I have the impulse to you know it, it, it would be a nice texture and uh, and I have that impulse. Well, I also I also think there is there is sort of latent racism and uh, you know one struggles against it. You shouldn't deny that it's there, but uh, uh, it, it it shouldn't be the dominant topic of daily life. I mean, there's latent anti-Semitism too. There's all sorts of latent biases. Right, my latent bias. I only have one true prejudice. Um, I probably shouldn't say. I'm sure some of my look. I can overcome my prejudice. The prejudice is just a prejudgment. It's against short people. Um, and as you know, some of my best friends are short. I can overcome my prejudice in any event. We got a little far afield. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I look at the OJ jury to see what, what black ladies think of blondes. Eh, he cut off a blonde's head, no big deal. So let's, let's give him an award. Um, I mean, there's, there's just so much more going on in here. But to have the newspaper of record furthering this nonsense and hatred um, of black ladies toward some black ladies, obviously not all, um, that is a prejudice that, that actually interferes with our lives as opposed to the latent racism you're talking about. Um, no, to ask your blonde female. I friends how they get treated by right. by not all not all not all by a long shot some are lovely christian ladies and i love them um but yeah that is a genuine hatred and to just allow one of their op-ed writers to to vent her spleen on the op-ed page of the new york times it's, it's I think don't it's you think it's hard. better to get it out it's better to get it out in the open where you could deal with it and ridicule it my problem with it is it didn't quite make its point it, it, it was like five thousand <laughs> words long and didn't ever say i hate blondes or something or blondes are that's a great point by mickey Kaus. yeah it's probably best to get many of these you know, hatred is just out in the open, right? So some hatreds, right, are needless, destructive, you know, gratuitous, all right? And uh, you, you should, uh, you know, perhaps uh, you know, stop letting them go or you know, minimize how much you, you express them in, in public. But, uh, yeah, a, a lot of hatreds, it's probably best to you know, publicize them, you know, let them go a, a little bit. So uh, Mickey Kaus frequently comes up with points that I didn't didn't consider. All right, before I get to the Mother Jones, Nick Fuentes story, so much great stuff in the in the L.A. Times. So we we landed in Los Angeles about uh, 30 minutes early and apparently customs doesn't open up until 6 a.m. So I was sitting on the, the plane scrolling through Apple News Plus. And just all these amazing stories that I'd love to discuss with you. 
but I, I need your feedback to, to hear if you want to talk about them because this is a you-directed stream. This isn't about me. This is about you and your needs and what you want. I'm turning over a new leaf. I'm becoming other-directed. I am here to serve you. All right, Los Angeles Times. These artists are preserving the history of a dance style gay men created in 70s-era Los Angeles. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Then we can talk about that. Or don't block your blessings, cis straight men. Embrace the beauty of skirts. Powerful, powerful story. Or commentary. It's not just the Oscars that fail black women. It's the entire awards ecosystem. Stunning and brave. Los Angeles Times. Asian seniors should keep dancing and other advice on how to rebuild after a tragedy. So Asian Americans, less than any other group, are vulnerable overall to violent crime, right? Less violent crime happens to Asian Americans than happens to white Americans, black Americans, or Latino Americans. So this, this notion that there's some kind of you know, massive tsunami of hatred against Asians, you know, rolling through America seems absolutely ludicrous. And among the, the absolute safest places that, that you can go, all right, are, you know, Asian dance parlors. So this idea that, you know, Asians going dancing are particularly under threat because we had, you know, three older Asian men you know, go on massive shootabouts. Well, this is incredibly rare in American life. Okay, one more story here from, from The New Yorker. How New York's mayor, Eric Adams, started mentoring a con man. So why do you think Eric Adams started mentoring a con man? A, he wanted to do good. B, he found something about this con man particularly compelling. Uh, C, does uh, Eric Adams experience erotic attraction to women or to men or to both? So when, when you know, men start mentoring men, when men who are bachelors start mentoring men, and I guess, hey, I'm a bachelor and I guess I, I uh, mentor men, uh, but I don't feel any erotic attraction for them. But methinks maybe I am protesting too much. But uh, I choose to look on, on the positive side. I think this is fantastic that, you know, Eric Adams is getting out there and mentoring, you know, all these, uh, all these uh, men. I mean, what, what a giving, loving example, you know, th this bloke is, is setting us. Oh, a brewery's anti-violence mission was complicated by, by a killing. Like, I never would have expected that. I mean, could you believe that? Uh... U.S. Journal, published in the print issue of The New Yorker with the headline, Trouble Brewing. True Colors set out to make money and fight gang violence at the same time. Written by Charles Buffet. Narrated by Landon Woodson. Please be advised, this article contains adult language. In April of last year, America's largest beer company, Molson Coors, acquired a minority stake in a Wilmington, North Carolina brewery called True Colors. 
The brewery, which was started in 2017, had yet to produce any commercially available beer. But it is what people in the corporate world call mission-driven. Its stated aim is to reduce gang violence by employing members of rival gangs. The CEO of Molson Coors, Gavin Hatters. So imagine if this was a, a mission-driven company that wanted to bring people to Jesus. And imagine this was a mission-driven company that wanted to support the nuclear family and traditional conceptions of marriage. Okay. I, I, I'm uh, skeptical that that would meet with uh, much applause. But anyway, pretty shocking story here from the New Yorker. Suggested that the company's investment was connected to soul-searching prompted by the nationwide protests for racial justice in 2020. This partnership represents an opportunity to not only invest in what we believe will be a successful business, but also in a brand with a strong social justice presence that will have an immeasurable positive impact on hundreds of lives, he said. The founder of True Colors is a white entrepreneur named George William Bagby Taylor Jr. His business model is based, at least in part, on views shared by many experts. That the rise of black street gangs is related to the disappearance of working class jobs in American cities. Yeah, because, you know, before there was a disappearance of working class jobs in American cities, there were just no black street gangs. Right. We, we, we only have black street gangs because we, we import too much from, from China. So in Los Angeles, when they had a strong you know, gang enforcement operation, Half of the, the black men between like 18 and 30 were affiliated with, with street gangs. Yeah, is it really the, the lack of manufacturing jobs? I'm skeptical of this claim. And that the refusal of employers to hire people with criminal records has perpetuated joblessness in heavily policed neighborhoods. Yeah, that's the problem. I mean, that, that nails it. That's the problem with America, which has got way too much policing going on. I mean, it's so sad that these heavily policed urban neighborhoods, all right, it, it's just doing so much damage. I mean, it's the lack of midnight basketball. That's the problem. This is just such bizarre analysis. I, I, I'm struggling here. And, and normally... Words can, can flow from me like a mounty, mighty river. But I, I got to rewind this. This is bizarre. Positive impact on hundreds of lives, he said. The founder of True Colors is a white entrepreneur named George William Bagby Taylor Jr. His business model is based, at least in part, on views shared by many experts that the rise of black street gangs is related to the disappearance of working class. So I'm pretty uh, shocked to find out that uh, criminologists tend to be some, somewhere between 95 and 99% on the left, right? They, they, they don't want to blame criminals, right? And they don't want to blame communities that have enormous rates of crime, right? They, they somehow, they're very woke, and they believe that woke means that there are certain groups that should be held immune from public criticism, such as Jews, blacks, gays, the transgendered, and uh, the like. Jobs in American cities. And that the refusal of employers to hire people with criminal records has perpetuated joblessness in heavily policed neighborhoods. 
Whoa. So it's the refusal of employers to hire people with criminal records that has perpetuated joblessness in heavily policed neighborhoods. So first of all, these neighborhoods aren't heavily policed given you know the very low rate with which they, they solve murders and the astronomical amounts of crime that go on there and how dramatically crime comes down when you have policies like stop and frisk. So first of all, these neighborhoods, generally speaking, aren't heavily policed. Now, the, the reason that you have chronic homeless, uh, chronic joblessness in these heavily policed neighborhoods is not because employers are just, you know, too stupid to, you know, not overlook someone with a criminal record. It's that the very values and reactions to stimuli, all right, phrase things just in a completely neutral way, all right? People who evolve certain reactions to stimuli that lead to criminal convictions tend to have a whole string of pathologies that do not make for success in life or success in work. So the criminal convictions are simply a symptom of these pathological reactions to stimuli. Companies elsewhere have put former gang members to work packaging tuna and making vintage-inspired collegiate wear, most notably Homeboy Industries, which was founded by a Jesuit priest named Greg Boyle in Los Angeles, has employed hundreds of former gang members at a bakery, a grocery, and other businesses. Boyle began by creating a job training program, and four years passed before his organization launched its first retail venture. Homeboy Industries remains a nonprofit and requires that anyone seeking employment leave gang life behind. Whoa, that's way too restrictive. Can you imagine that? I mean, this this Father Boyle, Greg Boyle, and this you know Christian Homeboys Industries that they they only want to employ. The, these troubled young men after they have walked away from active participation in in crime gangs right wow that that's just so harsh so so punitive really do, do we have to hate like this taylor took a different approach he recruited purported gang leaders in wilmington and said that he wanted them to remain active in their gangs in order to maintain their influence True Colors is a private, for-profit enterprise. Our first goal is to sell beer, Taylor told a reporter in 2018. He has said that he aims to sell the company as he has sold other startups. Three months after Molson's investment, on an early morning in July, Taylor got a phone call. There had been a shooting at his son's house. George William Bag... Whoa! Who would thought that employing people from rival gangs, right? People who are still actively participating in gangs, people with criminal records actively participating in rival gangs. Who, whoever could have imagined that this would lead to criminal violence? I'm shocked. Taylor III, who was in his early 30s, was the COO of True Colors. He lives in a large, white-columned home in a gated community called Providence. When his father got to the house that morning, Taylor III was in his underwear, in handcuffs, in the back of a squad car. The police had discovered him barricaded in a bathroom with a pair of guns, one of which, according to a search warrant, 
he'd found in a bedroom where multiple gang members had been living. Two people were dead. Cordrice Tyson, who was 29, and Brianna Williams, who was 21. Both were black. Tyson was employed by True Colors and was a member of the Gangster Disciples. Well, I'm pretty shocked. Just imagine that, that both victims were, were black. This, this is just blowing me away. The sheriff's office quickly came to believe that the murders were gang-related and that Taylor III was not directly involved. The sheriff declined to comment on an ongoing investigation. Still, Williams's family was concerned that the Taylors bore some responsibility for her death. You take a lot of young kids from different areas of town, different gangs, different sets, knowing they don't like each other, and put them in one building, and you're paying them, and you want them to stay in the gang while working. Her brother, Malquan Dixon, said, incredulous, in an interview with local TV news. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you. It's obvious to me that white people are responsible for black gang members shooting each other. It's these do-gooder white people, man. They're the problem here. You can't live two lives like that. One has to go. Williams's mother, Adrian Dixon, addressed the elder Taylor directly. You're doing nothing but harming my community. Somewhere that you don't live, she said. Dixon was also upset that Taylor hadn't called her or Williams's father before issuing a public statement the day after the murders. In the statement, he described Williams, whom he admitted he did not know, as a young woman with her whole life ahead of her. He described Tyson as a friend and as one of the incredible and selfless people at True whose work had undoubtedly saved countless lives. He noted that Tyson was not the first person connected with True to have been killed and acknowledged that he had not commented publicly about the previous... Yeah, bro, they were just enacting whiteness. It's times like this that, uh, that we need the six million points of light to, to start you know, coming into, into full bloom. All right, let's play a little bit more here. Ann Quarter talking with Mickey Kaus. Jerks, or they're, you know, it, it, it danced around that. Uh, but uh, you can you can then deal. There was a lot of resentment among black women for the sort of white women that black men like to go out with. Uh, I also that's, have that's been, to that. that's been heavily documented. Right, it's heavily documented, and I object to that. And and I would say to um, my vast audience of black lady viewers here, um, I feel the same way about that. I have um, in in my lifetime, I've been single for 120 years. Um, in my lifetime, I've had I've dated boys who had girlfriends that I didn't know about, never a married man, as far as I know. Um, no, 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 never a married man. But, you know, I find out into the relationship, often because the girlfriend finds out about me, and the girlfriend, okay, who are you gonna be mad at? I didn't know you existed. <laughs> Your dumbass boyfriend cheated on you, he knows you existed. How about being mad at the guy? It's a very weird impulse, but no, no, I'm going to hold the boy. He didn't do it, it must have been this vixen. Um, and it's not the, it, it, not the exact same thing, but in my case, the ones I'm thinking of, um, pretty much everyone involved was white, so it wasn't a black-white thing. But it's the same thing with, with, with black women being angry at blondes. How about don't get mad at the blonde, get yeah. mad at the black man going for the yeah. blonde. Yeah, I agree, the, uh, the, uh, the, but there's, no, there's, really no, there's only one way I know to fight the uh, prejudice against unattractive people. And, to, and the, the natural tendency of people, especially people who are single, to rate people according to their looks and pay more attention to the attractive ones and the unattractive ones, which, uh, and that is to run for office. When you run for office, everybody's a vote. You treat everybody the same. Oh. You treat a, a fat person is the same as a thin person. Three fat people, three times as well as a thin person. Uh, it, it's, it, it, it's a total democratizing uh, attitude you have to have. 
Uh, and it's it's a wonderful thing as long as it lasts. If you only get 5%, as I did, it doesn't last very long. But, um, <laughs> well, also, uh, if anyway. you're a salesman, and really, we're all salesmen in one way or another, um, the same thing is true at, at a book signing or at a speech, or I suppose if you're running a store, a customer is a customer. I guess that's right. And yes, right. people do come over that's their prejudices. Right. Though you did just remind me, this is an argument um, we used to spring on our very racially sensitive fellow law students, the white ones were the most racially sensitive, um, that uh, really the worst thing, the most discrimination of all isn't my little idiosyncratic um, prejudice against short people. Um, and again, many of my best friends are short people. Um, it's, it's really ugly people. That would be horrible. That would be really awful because people do have, I mean, there's not much you can do about it. Um, I suppose if you're overweight, you can, you can lose weight, but it's, it's a prejudice that no one ever talks about, I suppose, because the victims of it don't want to come forward and say, hey, I'm ugly and people are really mean to me and discriminate against me and I didn't get that job because I'm and the chat says, don't get mad at the coal burner. Get mad at the coal? No. No. <laughs> How are you guys handling these, you know, thick loads of wisdom that are just washing all over you? I mean, are we just are we just enacting whiteness in these streams? Is this what we have devolved to? That we're just people who think we're white enacting whiteness and perpetrating, say, microaggressions I, I would i would hope i would hope that there's there's something more than, than that going on in these live streams all right it came from the basement how nick fuentes groomed a new generation of racist hate so as someone who has had several dozen news articles about him and as a blogger and there's just this superior attitude by by the news media to people who who blog or people who live stream their you know they they live in their parents basement all right cheap put down so i remember when the jewish journal of los angeles put me on on their cover right it's like interview with a serial blogger right you know serial killer a serial blogger lives in the parents basement all right it's this irresistible urge to put people down and obviously that's not just something with the news media i think that's just something very human, right? We all, you know, get get a thrill from uh, putting people down. Let me get my act together. But House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has made clear cuts to those programs are not on the table. None of that is true. And that's the bad part here, that the first administration said they won't negotiate, and then they want to play politics. Why are they so afraid to sit down to find where you can eliminate waste? President Biden has signed $5.8 trillion worth of new spending into law since he took office. House Republicans now say it's up to them to rein that in. In his speech today, though, President Biden is expected to say that trillions of dollars in spending has actually helped the economy. John? Helped inflation as well. Helped jack it up. There's no question about that. That's Grady what Trimble the economists say. Yeah, that's what. Yeah. But who are they to know? They're just economists. Grady Trimble for us. Grady, thank you. Sandra. <laughs> All right. Well, the GOP gets ready to roll out several investigations. OK, let's uh, move back to this Mother Jones essay on Nick Fuentes. How Nick Fuentes groomed a new generation of racist hate. And this is another big misconception that I see dominant in the news media and in academia and among the social elite, that it is people like Rush Limbaugh and Tucker Carlson and Nick Fuentes and Richard Spencer, they create all this racist hate when really they articulate it, right? Donald Trump didn't create, you know, bigotry and racism, 
right? If you see bigotry and racism as serious problems in America, well, Donald Trump didn't create them and he didn't, you know, massively expand these forms of hatred, right? People like Nick Fuentes, Donald Trump, you know, Tucker Carlson, they articulate things that many people feel, right? There would be approximately the same amount of quote unquote racist hatred in this country if Donald Trump never came along, if Nick Fuentes never came along, if Tucker Carlson never came along, if uh, Richard Spencer, Nick Fuentes, you know, or Rush Limbaugh, all right? It's that there's all this, all these subterranean emotions which are supposed to be beyond us, all right? So the remember, the liberal conception of the self is that we should be reflexive, that we should take into account the effect of everything we say and do on other people, all right, as opposed to the traditional conception of the self, which is, you know, a man has a right to be king in his own castle, master of his own domain, and he should be after, you know, sit at home, say what he thinks without taking into consideration, you know, how every single individual or group might have, you know, negative feelings about what's being said. But the the left-wing liberal conception of morality is that we've always got to take into consideration every single you know individual and group in, in what we say, and that the greatest threats to society are ignorance and bigotry, and so the left and the liberals are always on this you know ceaseless crusade to combat ignorance and bigotry. How Nick Fuentes groomed a new generation of racist no, Nick Fuentes provided an entertaining expression of quote-unquote racist hatred for people who aren't terribly smart. So the, what the average IQ of Nick Fuentes' audience is probably something like 100. So eight months before the white nationalist figure, Nicholas J. Fuentes. Now, if uh, Nick Fuentes is a, a white nationalist, he's unlike pretty much any white nationalist we've seen before. I, I don't think that white nationalist is, is the most accurate description for him, right? This this is not someone who is uh, consumed with hatred. Right? This is not someone who is you know just constantly denigrating non-white groups. This is not someone who's constantly saying how you know whites are superior to all other groups. Yeah, he says that on occasion, but this isn't what drives him. Okay, so Fuentes ignited a political firestorm by dining with Kanye West and Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago. So. Did he ignite a political firestorm? I guess he ignited a political firestorm for those people for whom you know, politics is number one in their life. So live streaming must be number one in my life. All right, I'm severely sleep deprived. I haven't had a shower. I haven't you know, cleaned up, put all my stuff away. And here I am you know, live streaming because I've got these you know, powerful pulsating insights that I've just got to share with you. Uh, but the... The only people who are ignited in this political firestorm are people who put politics pretty close to number one in their life. I think everyone else just went on with their life. Okay, so eight months before Nicholas Fuentes ignited this political firestorm, and I don't think that uh, what he did dining with Kanye West and Donald Trump is worthy of a political firestorm. I, th I think it's compelling anecdote. It uh, reveals things about Donald Trump that he doesn't have an effective team, you know, vetting who he meets with. That uh, Donald Trump doesn't like to criticize people who who praise him. That Donald Trump, you know, so loves being praised that he will take it from almost anyone. And I've experienced that too. 
I love being praised. I have a thirst for being admired. And that that thirst can get out of control and, and start wreaking havoc in my life. So when I am centered, all right, when, I, when I'm in, in a good place, then, you know, I'm much less likely to, you know, feel some gratification when the dregs of society, you know, praise me, right? But if I'm feeling particularly empty, right, if I feel like, you know, my life's not working, my world's collapsing in around me, that people don't appreciate me, then, yeah, I'll, I'll take that, you know, I'll take that praise from, you know, the dregs of society. Luke, have you heard the latest about TRS? Some high weirdness around their partner publisher, Antelope Hill, being connected to Israel. No, I have, uh, <laughs> I have not, not heard that. Oh, so entertaining. Okay. So eight months before that dining out, that dinner. Uh, so Nick Fuentes strode out on stage to a crowd of what he claimed were a thousand followers chanting American first. Like, so imagine you got a, let's say you do have a thousand followers of Nick Fuentes chanting American first. What percentage of them would you estimate are doctors? I would estimate zero. What percentage do you estimate belong to a profession? A dentist, professor, accountant, attorney, I would estimate pretty close to zero. Uh, what percentage of these people didn't graduate high school? I don't know, 10, 10% perhaps. Uh, what percentage of these thousand followers earned in six figures? So I would bet less than 2%. Uh, what percentage of these thousand followers would be married with children? I would guess less than 5%. So anyway, behind a podium flanked by two American flags and one with that slogan, American first, Nick Fuentes hit his standard beats, the nation is decline, Christ is king, while sprinkling in some extremely troubling riffs, like comparing Vladimir Putin to Hitler, suggesting the similarity was a good thing. Okay, so people cease being troubling when you place them in their correct genre. All right, so... If you understand that Nicholas Fuentes is a provocateur, a something of a, a shock jock, that uh, he has the mentality of many young men who play, you know, Grand Theft Auto, right? This is a Grand Theft Auto devotee who's now you know, giving uh, political commentary. You would no longer, you'd no longer be troubled, right? This is. If Nick Fuentes says these things, it's very different than if, say, Donald J. Trump says these things or George Will, all right? If George Will started talking like like uh, Nick Fuentes, then, yeah, there's reason to be troubled. But, you know, the, the grand theft auto ethos, all right? And, and I think Nick Fuentes embodies far more of the grand theft auto ethos than the Roman Catholic or Christian ethos. There's virtually nothing that's feels Christian to me about Nick Fuentes, aside from a, a rhetorical device, right? I just don't see any evidence that this is someone who takes Christianity seriously. I do see an evidence that this is someone who takes gaming seriously. So Nick Fuentes is a gamer. He's the type of bloke who, you know, plays Grand Theft Auto, and then he comments on politics. So 
once you place him in his correct genre, right? This is this is a gamer, right? This is you know Grand Theft Auto kind of guy, then you're not going to find this troubling, right? This is just you know blokes who are not married, don't have prestigious positions in society, that blowing off some steam. This Marriott Conference Center worth of groipers, which Nick Fuentes fans call themselves an homage, homage to a right-wing internet frog meme, had gathered in Orlando for the third annual America First Political Action Conference. He was serving as the warm-up act for a secret guest of honor, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. She didn't say anything too noteworthy, but her willingness to appear in an event hosted by an openly racist Holocaust denier was a massive victory for his cause. Right. I'm not a world's expert on uh, Nick Fuentes, but quote-unquote Holocaust denial would probably occupy 001 of what Nick Fuentes talks about. So it's unfair, I think, to tag him with Holocaust denier and uh, white nationalist, even though he has said things that that are in line with that. And so I'm not going to lose sleep that he gets tagged with, with these things. But he's a gamer, right? He's a bloke who talks primarily to blokes. And blokes like to say shocking, funny things, particularly while they're gaming. So no need to get or troubled. So, yeah, openly racist Holocaust denier. It was a massive victory for his cause. Really, was it a massive victory for Nick Fuentes's cause? Because Marjorie Taylor Greene said afterwards she didn't know anything about him. How exactly was this a massive victory for, for Nick Fuentes's cause? Do you think that his following you know, would be substantially decreased if she'd never appeared at this conference, do you? Yeah, it's just locker room talk, bros. Just locker room talk. Do you, do you think that you know his his bank account, his you know opportunities in life, his his prominence would be significantly reduced if Marjorie Taylor Greene or Paul Gosar had never appeared at his conferences? They were trying to use Nick, right? Nick wasn't using them, right? They were trying to appeal to Nick's audience. His success. To the extent he has success, you consider Nick Fuentes successful, has nothing to do with Marjorie Taylor Greene or Paul Gosar sitting members of Congress speaking at his events. Becoming a member of Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene had helped bring institutional credibility to fringe and racist conspiracy theories. Really? Did she really bring institutional credibility? Did did hearing that uh, the Rothschilds might have fired off uh, space lasers to cause you know, forest fires in California, did that really bring just a ton of credibility, institutional credibility to that perspective? Right, people did not evolve to be gullible. People were not born yesterday. They're not stupid. Just because a sitting member of Congress or a president of the United States says something ludicrous, right, it doesn't you know, change hearts and minds. People only change their hearts and their minds when it's in their interest to do so when it already fits in with how they view the world. So this Mother Jones article subscribes to the the zombie bite theory of information that if people just get exposed to Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeting that California forest fires were caused by Rothschilds firing space lasers, that, you know, they're just going to get zapped by by reading that and, and turn into helpless zombies. It's, completely ludicrous understanding of human nature. 
which does fit with the left, who have an equally ludicrous understanding of human nature that people are born basically good and that it's a society that warps them. From a traditionalist perspective, people are born basically selfish and society helps morally educate people. So when I was you know, going through year after year of chronic fatigue syndrome, particularly severe in my 20s, so I was basically you know, bedridden 18, 20 hours a day. Almost everyone I met and spoke to in the second half of life was compassionate. And very few people that I spoke to who are my, my age or younger were. So by the time we hit our 20s, it's very rare that we deliberately do things to shame people to their face, right? There are all sorts of you know, harsh edges to our personalities that are effectively smoothed off by the time we hit our 20s. And people in their 40s tend to be much kinder and more compassionate, more agreeable, more conscientious, you know, less neurotic than people younger than that. So that's some of the basis for the traditional conception that, yeah, we're born basically selfish and society usually morally educates us. Now, Marjorie Taylor Greene was doing the same for his brand of white nationalism. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's accurate. Just as much as Marjorie Taylor Greene brought institutional credibility to fringe and racist conspiracy theories, in, in my view, none. Now she's doing the same for his brand of white nationalism. None. It was a big deal for her to come out and do that, Fuentes said, praising Green after a keynote. You guys know full well the risk. She put herself out on a limb tonight. We here at AFPAC, America First Political Action Committee, are grateful. At AFPAC, our family said it would be a small group of highly motivated people who would change the world. He added, here in Orlando, I say, we are that group of people. We are going to rule this country. <laughs> I suspect that it is unlikely that... Members of AFPAC, Nick Fuentes' political action committee, are going to rule this country. So count me, count me skeptical. But here's uh, Ann Corter talking to Mickey Kaus. But I think that is the worst, the worst prejudgment that the nation or any nation has. Oh, it's certainly hard to overcome. But uh, anyway, the... Um, uh, I think we've canceled ourselves, so we'll never be on the we'll never be on the Supreme Court. Okay, well that's good because I can um, I can bring up the next topic, which I've already talked about on a podcast that you weren't on. We had oh, a s small disagreement, you and me, um, in our last podcast. Uh, I agreed with you in theory. Turns out I was wrong on what the Florida woke act. And we are currently going out live over Rumble. We are live over Odyssey and Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And we've got a comment here in the rumble chat a lot of nick supporters are just done with the immoral idiocracy of the current establishment they were raised in a debased corporate filth society and they want something better yeah so i don't think that most of nick's followers are primarily animated by hatred of non-whites i don't think most of nick's followers are primarily animated by denying the holocaust i don't think they're primarily animated by you know hatred of jews I think they're primarily animated by the sense that almost all of America's institutions are governed by the left and that we're steadily becoming a less moral, more degenerate, you know, less godly society. And to simply stay in place as a Christian, to, to the extent that uh, Christianity was influential in the 1950s, now, now you have to take much more extreme measures. You have to become a quote-unquote Christian nationalist. Right to simply hold by the same moral standards that you know Christians were employing, you know, in the 1950s. So, 
I've been swimming a lot in the ocean uh, over the past few months in Australia. And when you get caught in a riptide, right, you have to swim a lot harder to get back to shore. So if you're fighting a two mile an hour riptide, right, and your normal uh, swimming speed is two miles an hour, then you have to swim twice as fast to make substantial progress against the tide. American Christians and American religious Jews and religious people of all kinds in the United States having to fight against an increasingly secular tide, and so it requires much greater degree of devotion. Right? Becoming a Roman Catholic priest is a much more natural thing if you're living in parts of Italy and Poland. But if you become a Roman Catholic priest in the United States, right, that requires... You know, a whole new level of commitment. You have to put, you know, a lot more into it. It doesn't just uh, flow with the tide as it would in parts of Italy and Poland. So, too, in an increasingly non-Christian and anti-Christian America, right, just maintaining some semblance of traditional morality, some semblance of, you know, devotion to God, to, you know, biblical principles and ideals and, and practices, right, requires much more extreme Devotion. And let's see what's going on here with Fox News. React to the delivery of Western battle tanks. This has largely been seen as a massive leap on the escalation ladder in this war. Sandra. Trey Yinks on the ground in Kiev for us. Thank you very much, Trey. John. Sandra, let's bring in Wyoming Senator John Barrasso. He's on the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate. So we're sending. Yeah, let's let's not uh, bring him in. Okay, back to this Mother Jones essay on Nick Fuentes. The event's evolution, meaning the America First Political Action Committee, suggests he's made progress towards this goal that we're going to rule this country. Do you, do you really think that Nick Fuentes has made you know, substantial progress towards that goal? I, I think that's delusional. The first one in February 2020 had no politicians instead featuring far-right commentator Michelle Malkin and Patrick Casey. By 2022, six Republican elected officials spoke, including Green and Representative Paul Gosar. They appeared alongside explicit white power activists, including Vincent James, Peter Brimlow, founder of VDARE, and Jared Taylor, founder of American Renaissance. The logistics of the Orlando conference were also designed to accelerate the GOP's slide toward white nationalism. Really? You, you really think that the Republican Party is just sliding Sliding, sliding, sliding towards white nationalism. I, I just don't see it. I think that's uh, completely absurd. It was just a 15-minute drive from where the Conservative Political Action Conference, which for decades has drawn the party's biggest names and thousands of attendees, was taking place the same day. Okay, so proximity does not mean that these two forces have a great deal in common. Right, just because... Nick Fuentes' conference is 15 minutes from CPAC. Doesn't mean that they have, you know, a whole lot of stuff in common. They find that particularly powerful. So AFPAC started at 9 p.m. after CPAC wrapped, so participants could attend both. So, how many of the participants at AFPAC you think went to CPAC? I would venture fewer than 10 percent, most likely fewer than 5 percent. I'm not buying a lot of these premises in this Mother Jones article. Now, Mother Jones does do, you know, careful. Uh, let me rephrase. They do do some interesting journalism. And this 
essay is interesting. I mean, it's definitely you know has a strong left wing slant, but it's still still you know worth worth reading if you're interested in this topic. In the latter half of the 20th century, the GOP was pushed right by radio provocateurs like Rush Limbaugh, Nick Fuentes' hero, Pat Buchanan. Was the GOP pushed right by talk radio, or did the GOP and talk radio simply reflect the base? Right, you get a following to the degree that you meet people's needs. Right, Rush Limbaugh was not shifting people to the right, and I don't think that uh, you know the GOP has shifted substantially to the right. People who never held elected office but were deeply influential to a radicalizing party and a portent of his Trumpified future. Well, Pat Buchanan has served in political office working for Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon. And is the Republican Party radicalizing? I mean, sure, if at the same time you're willing to say, yeah, the Democratic Party is also radicalizing. Today, this 24-year-old digital native is doing the same. My job, Fuentes explained in a May 2021 live stream, is to keep pushing things further. Right? Fuentes or 40 or any commentator, right, any pundit, any activist can only push people in a direction where they already want to go. If they don't want to go there, you're not going to have any success pushing them. Go out there into the world and try to push people further and uh, see how that works out, right? In, in my experience, that doesn't really tend to, to work out very well. Right? You can never effectively push anyone anywhere they don't already want to go. I'm just concerned about this misinformation and conspiracy mongering on the left. There's just a tsunami. I just, I don't know about you, I feel like I'm just getting face blasted by all this left wing, you know, conspiracy mongering and misinformation, and, and I'm tired of it. We need to do something about it. It makes me uncomfortable. To, to be face-blasted by all this misinformation. Uh, so Fuentes says, my job is to keep pushing things further. All right, he's never going to push anyone further than they already want to go. My father was a Christian evangelist, right? The, the only people that he would, you know, bring to Christ were those who were already, you know, predisposed to that message, who, who wanted some assurance of their heavenly salvation. So if Nick Fuentes believes that he's pushing things further he's delusional we because nobody else will need to push the envelope yeah nobody else is pushing the envelope only only nick fuentes and the gropers we're going to get called racist sexist anti-semitic bigoted yeah because nobody else is called racist sexist anti-semitic and bigoted it's only gropers when the party is where we are two years later, we're not going to get the credit for the ideas that became popular. Yeah, I'm sure it's it's the Groypers who are leading the Republican Party's evolution. But that's okay. We are the right-wing flank of the Republican Party. This is delusional, right? Virtually no elected Republican officials will stand with Nick Fuentes. One of Fuentes's talents is pivoting from any topic to his central beliefs. Well, yeah, any live streamer, right? To be a successful live streamer, you have to just be pumping out whatever's, you know, coming into your mind, right? You just have to be this, you know, stream of consciousness because, you know, if you, you know, st strongly, carefully consider everything that you're saying, then 
you get streamus interruptus. You'll get, you know, a squirt of uh, punditry here, followed by a long awkward pause, followed by you know a dribble drabble drip drip of uh, thoughts, and then you know you'll get face blasted by ten randos commentary that you know has nothing to do with the, the purported topic of the live stream. It's not it's not a pretty sight, mate. It's not just about the pandemic, Nick exhorted. Take a look at this city for the past year, ever since George Floyd died. Just like every city in America, the crime is out of control. Well, crime is out of control, right? Not just in New York City, not just in Los Angeles. We've had a massive growth in murder and traffic deaths and pedestrian deaths since the arrival of Black Lives Matter on the scene in 2014. Anger over public health measures provided a way to launder more extreme and racist positions. But did it really? Right. Let's say someone is anti-lockdown, someone's anti-vax, and are they, they therefore more likely then to become you know, racist and anti-Semitic? I don't think you know people who anti-lockdown, anti-vax, and they hear Nick Fuentes saying the same thing, that they then, you know, wash away his more repulsive comments. It's like, oh, well, at least this guy's, you know, anti-vax and anti-lockdown. You know, therefore, I'm, you know, A-OK with, you know, these, these jokes he makes about the Holocaust. And Mother Jones says that uh, Nick is tapping into his audience's fears of being left behind. Well, yeah, that is how you become a successful speaker, whether it's on a live stream or in person or on the radio. You have to move people, right? People want to feel something, right? People want to get energized. People want to get angry. People want to have their feelings and thoughts distilled and articulated in a you know, more pleasing and profound manner than they're able to do for themselves. So anyone who has any success with, with public speaking Right, it's because they can emotionally move people. They can convey emotion. So one definition of charisma is that you do something that seems very difficult, verging on the impossible, that gets attention. You then get more followers, resources, money, which enables you to do more things which look very difficult or impossible. And that spiral continues as long as you can pull it off, but eventually, you know, everyone fails. So there there are limits to charisma. Another theory of charisma is that charisma is someone who pr consistently provides you with additional energy. So you tune into a live stream and that live streamer is filled with energy and passion and enthusiasm and emotion and you feel energized and passionate and more excited about life just by you know tapping into that live stream, right? That is charismatic, just like a person at work who you know, goes around, says good morning, connects with people, how was your weekend, right? And you feel energized after connecting, consistently connecting with someone, you feel better, you feel more energized. That person's charismatic. Some people have a gift of making people around them feel better, feel good, feel energized. You know, that type of person is charismatic. So there are two definitions of charisma, which I think are pretty good, right? Here's Ann Coulter talking with Mickey Kaus. 
said, which you emailed me about. So I promptly changed my position. Um, do you want to describe the parameters of well, what we agreed the, on and what the dispute was? <laughs> the question was, did this DeSantis anti-Walk law, uh, all the attention has been going to its effect on universities and schools, but it also applies to businesses and it prevents, it, it, it makes, if you have diversity training that makes somebody feel shamed because of their race, uh, that is a, a grounds for a civil suit the same way, I guess, creating a toxic workplace sexually is grounds for a civil suit. Uh, and it's just been added to the list of complaints employees can make that hold their employer accountable and subject to, I guess, damages or something. Uh, if they if they uh, employ employ woke diversity training that says white people should be ashamed and uh, you know can never repay the debt, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, uh, so uh, that's what it says. It does apply to private businesses. That's and what is our that dispute was. Yeah, I yeah. thought it did not, and I said yes. You're right. I think it shouldn't apply to private businesses. This is just businesses doing um, contracting with the states or schools, universities, so on and so forth. And after the podcast, you emailed me and said, no, 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 it applies to private businesses. Whereupon I promptly changed my position, and I think it should apply to private businesses. Would you like to hear my argument? Yes. <laughs> Um, this is a very libertarian instinct of yours, uh, which is what I was initially going with, because, yeah, in a perfect world, I'd agree with you. I don't think there should be any employment discrimination rules. Well, except one, except against black people. I would keep that one. You can't discriminate against black people. And that is it. But the way things stand now, it's liberals just piling on one thing after another. And then the trial lawyers rushing in and making it basically impossible to to not hire, um, to not promote, to fire anyone except a straight American born um fully abled white male. And so you get this ratchet effect uh, where, where the only people who aren't protected are the ones you know who vote Republican because Republicans say, oh no, business, private business should be able to do whatever it wants. And you have absolutely crazy employment lawsuits and employers and people at, at law firms and HR departments walking on eggshells. And oh my gosh, you didn't ask someone if she was pregnant, did you? Um, you didn't ask about marital status. There was an airline was forced to hire an actual case, 55-year-old pilots, even though the mandatory retirement age is age 60 for fear of, of, of age discrimination. Saying to someone at work, Okay, boomer, that could be an example of age discrimination. I mean, it is completely out of control. And for one thing, to protect the sort of people who ever vote Republican, like I say, it's just a ratchet effect hurting your voters, <laughs> helping everybody else. Um, but also because liberals never understand the perniciousness of their stupid laws and stupid policies until it finally gets applied to them and against them. Yeah, I, I have to. Yeah, that's uh, some pretty good commentary there from Ann Coulter. Remember this. That's the guy who's now quoted in the Sundance documentary the one who was calling her pestering her don't you remember don't you really remember? it's just another tendentious description everybody everybody <laughs> who accuses obama it's like oh he's the only guy we could go to uh <laughs> that that sort of lends the the it sort of detract okay here they're talking about the new documentary on supreme court justice brett kavanaugh get kavanaugh he'll do it <laughs> nope yeah get kavanaugh he'll do it again uh made a documentary where he claims there was one other cold call to the fbi a guy who said uh, he had heard about the Ramirez incident. Well, that's nothing. That's like more secondhand rumors. But that he had witnessed uh, Kavanaugh uh, also expose himself to another co-ed at another drunken party. Uh, and um, what I want to know is, why is Kavanaugh the only guy who exposes himself? Is he, is he the designated penis for Yale? It's like, <laughs> oh, we gotta, we're going to have fun at this party. Somebody's going to expose himself. Get Kavanaugh. He'll do it. Nobody else will do it. We're surrounded by macho rugby players. They won't do it. But they'll get Kavanaugh and they'll like him on. It's like it's like this, the stories when a guy comes to Chicago and, and, says, and, and they say, well, we'll introduce you, to the, introduce you to the top drug dealer, Barack Obama. He controls all the drug trade in Chicago. He's like the only drug dealer in Chicago. Everybody everybody who accuses Obama is like, oh, he's the only guy we could go to. Uh, that, that sort of lends the, the – it sort of detracts from the credibility that it's always just, you know, Kavanaugh is doing it. Not Kavanaugh and two buddies. It's always Kavanaugh. Uh, and, and that said, there is a scintilla of evidence now that, you know, that's – some guy claims to have witnessed, and the FBI supposedly didn't follow it up. Thank goodness, because Kevin. Okay, and uh, Anne and Mickey have noticed a decline in the quality of Twitter. So I can no longer, when I go to Twitter, 
I think there was an algorithm change about a month or two ago. I no longer automatically get those accounts that I'm following and I don't get to you know, see them in reverse chronological order, you know, the latest first. Now Twitter is force feeding me all sorts of stuff that I don't want. So I'm not very happy about Elon Musk's direction of Twitter over the past six weeks. Well, a bunch of weirdos took down a moderate third-way Democrat. Was that the Netflix thing? Not the one that came out recently. I haven't seen the recent one. I hear uh, it's the right. Joe Cotterson movie must have gone straight to video because I don't even remember it. I mean, Sounds pretty relevant. Uh, you know, one would want to know before one voted for Clinton, is is he willing to tell his wife no? Turns out he wasn't. And that was the stupidest decision of his uh, first term. Okay, this is another good point by Mickey Kaus that... Uh, good! Of, uh, 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 of a, a bunch of uh, points in his book, but the, 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 the essential point of Tubin... Do I get Nick Fuentes? Well, I'm not really his target audience, all right? He's talking to gamers. So Nick is uh, entertaining at kind of a, you know, he, he's speaking primarily to like a 100 IQ level. So he can be you know, moderately funny and moderately entertaining, but it's not really my thing. So he's a gamer, so I'm not troubled by what he's saying. You have to, you know, fit it into the, the context of say people who play a lot of Grand Theft Auto. His book was uh, the the uh, the um, character issue was just an excuse, and, and the whole the whole sexual uh, adultery issue is just an excuse to bring up. Could I see homeless encampments from the plane? No, and I think I, I you know seen a reduced number of homeless encampments in Los Angeles over the past fourteen months. So that's just my anecdotal impression tawdry details to titillate the public. And then later on in the book, he says how Bill Clinton was reluctant to pull the plug on Hillary's failed health care reform because he had such a reputation as a philanderer, he couldn't <laughs> talk up to her. Well, it sounds pretty relevant. Uh, you know, one would want to know before one voted for Clinton, is is he willing to tell his wife no? Turns out he wasn't. And that was the stupidest decision of his uh, first term. That's so, a good point. Um, uh, that's a really good point. Anyway, well, better, I can tell better... you as a target, in a sense, I don't know if that's the right word, of Michael Isakoff, because I was working behind the scenes on briefs for Paula Jones um, and her legal arguments and, and got Linda Tripper, a lawyer for her, um, a deadhead friend of mine. Um, so I knew a lot about what was going on and all that, and I did not want to talk to the press. I didn't want anyone, or about what I was doing. I didn't want the other lawyers to tell me anything I shouldn't be, I shouldn't I know before going on TV. I just do my little legal research stuff, um, and, and I did Paula Jones interrogatory. Anyway, um, you don't when you don't want to talk about something you don't want to hear my, michael isakoff's voice on your answering machine um you would just be saying i know you did xyz um you can call me back but i'm going with it one way or another this sort of and excuse me paula jones but you know sort of borderline white trap you know this is really bad this is truly undermining the rule side i mean <laughs> your, your fan side I'm, it, it has um my main reason for thinking so is 2000, I won't even include 2016. A lot of people on Twitter are really fun, really exciting because Trump was running for office. So I will exclude 2015 and 16. But I know what Twitter was like 2017, 2018. I'd even say before Trump came along what Twitter was like. So, you know, 2014 and 13. And I kind of know how many likes I'd get. I kind of know roughly how many, how many retweets I'd get. And it is still down 90%. Now that isn't proof. It just makes me a teensy bit suspicious. And especially when I see others who are definitely not banned yeah, it's kind of curious how the shadow burning, shadow banning of conservatives after a brief pause does not seem to have substantially diminished under Elon Musk. Or shadow banned by Elon, and I'm sure they pulled all the algorithms off it. Some boring tweet has like 8 million um, views, not views, I never look at that, but retweets, likes, um, which I won't say because it's a friend of 
of Elon's and no no use making <laughs> making him more annoyed than he is. But what I tweeted out, which I mean, this this is provable. This isn't Anne just saying, go back and look at my Twitter feed from before 2018. And that is, I sent out a tweet. In two hours, it had more than a thousand likes. One hour later, it had 299 likes. So it had more than 700 likes taken away in an hour. Now, Mickey, nobody goes back. Oh, remember that tweet I liked an hour ago? I think I'm going to go unlike it. That doesn't happen. And 700 people don't go back and unlike a tweet. But if you notice, if you must have noticed since Musk took over and fight all this, tweet, Twitter doesn't work as well as it used to. It does, it's minor, but there's screw ups, and that could just be a screw up. They, no, I've had it happen before since 2018. No, 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 no. I promise you, this has not happened to a liberal. And to say, yeah, my experience of Twitter has definitely declined over the past six weeks. Oh, this is just a screw up. No, you can't keep saying, oh, oops, we didn't mean to do suspend you. That must have been a mistake. This is exactly what went on before Elon, where somebody would be suspended or banned. This happened to James Wood all the time, and you know they'd come back two weeks later. Oh, I don't know. It was an algorithm. Sorry, an error. How come it only happens to conservatives? The um, are you saying that this is holdover, holdover San Francisco liberals who are doing this, or is it so built into the algorithm that somehow it happens of its own accord, and Musk and his people haven't managed to root it out yet? I, either or both. I mean, I think you're the one who quoted. So I, I'm just back from Australia, just a few hours back. I haven't slept in in 24 hours, so. I perhaps more likely to tell the truth. This is more raw, and I I also just feeling right now a much greater urge to be inside in Los Angeles, and it is a lovely sunny day. So it's not the weather; it's the quality of the life, it's the quality of the interactions, it's the amount of homelessness, crime, antisocial behavior that's going on in LA compared to Sydney. And it's that, you know, half the people in L.A. don't even speak English. But I feel much more, you know, my home is my sanctuary. You know, I want to, you know, get home and decompress. In in Sydney, I would frequently leave home to decompress, right? Go into public spaces, go to the beach, go on a walkabout, go to the botanical gardens. But in in L.A., I feel that much stronger urge to stay home and live stream, stay home and read books. In, in Sydney, I'd be very happy to you know, go out to the beach and read a book, go to the park and, and read the book. So I, I notice, generally speaking, as societies become more diverse, meaning that uh, members of the society have less and less in common with each other, people volunteer less, they you know, pull in like, like turtles they spend more time at home, right? They participate less in public life, right? Because you're not strongly incentivized to participate in public life when you don't have much in common with people around you. So I'm just standing here thinking how glad I was to get home, you know, how you know glad I was to you know get away from the the messy, awkward, uh, sometimes dirty. Uh, generally uncomfortable, sometimes, you know, fearful nature of, you know, navigating around Los Angeles. Now, navigating around West Los Angeles and Beverly Hills, that is a far more comfortable place for me. That's far more pleasant. Uh, There's, you know, cleaner streets. There's much less crime. So Beverly Hills, Bel Air, Pacific Palisades, you know, Santa Monica, all right, even if these places are overwhelmingly on the left, I feel very comfortable hanging out there compared to, say, moving east of 
La Cienega Boulevard or east of Fairfax Boulevard towards downtown Los Angeles. I mean, it, it took me over an hour to get from LAX to, to Beverly Hills. And I was just like so glad, just feeling it now in my body. I was just so glad to get inside and, you know, have locked doors and have my own space and, you know, feel feel safe and comfortable again as opposed to just kind of the icky, awkward, let's just get this over with. And so when I'm feeling awkward, when I'm feeling uncomfortable, I am not terribly inclined to help other people. So as I was you know, navigating my way from LAX to, to, to Beverly Hills, I wasn't looking to help other people. Well, that came much more naturally in Sydney because I felt comfortable and safe around other people. When I don't feel comfortable and I don't feel terribly safe, when I'm not at ease you know, with, with my environment and many of the people around me, you know, it's, I just have much less inclination to help. I mean, I don't want to be that, that jerk who helps a stranger and is then rewarded for that by getting stabbed or, or getting shot. So people from Australia are often naive when they come to America and they intervene in all sorts of situations where they shouldn't intervene, but in the you know, the vastness of the big city. Now, Sydney is also a big city, but in Los Angeles, frequently it's not a good idea to, you know, to help, help a stranger if it's going to place you in a much more vulnerable position. So I was just doing this live stream and, and then thinking, I am so glad to be home and to be behind you know locked doors right now and i didn't feel that in in sydney I didn't feel that in queensland back to ann quarter talking to mickey cuss um like i was in mark andreason right silicon valley okay very bad on immigration but i'm guessing he knows how a computer works and i think you quoted him saying there are you know 63 different algorithms they could put in to suppress or as they say um what is it they um, de-amplify certain voices um so Yes, possible. Elon and his guys haven't gone in and found them all. Maybe they're really squirreled right. away. And probably there are still some mokesters there. I mean, either either one or both could still be true, but I know it right. hasn't been fixed. And it's even worse for them to come out and say, oh, look, we found these three conservatives were shadow banned, but we've lifted those shadow bands. So, Okay, some good comments from the chat. Fight or flight with 40. Maine has the most comfortable social atmosphere. And John says, this way you need a group of five foot four groipers to have your back. Well, I'd rather... You have to, you know, navigate the, the world around me without needing an army to back me up. I just want to live in peace, go to the beach, hang out with my friends. Oh, oh okay. Everything's fixed now when it isn't fixed for 99.99% of conservatives? Yeah. yeah. One of those people is Charlie Kirk, who now claims that he, that he is still shadow banned. He's been one of the people complaining. Even Cat Turd, who was, who was a Elon Musk great buddy for a while, uh, some weird... Uh, a tweeter called Ketter. I'm not responsible for his name, but uh, he's turned against Musk. Hmm. Uh, so when you've lost Ketter, you're in deep trouble. <laughs> and I'm, my theory is that uh, I'm worried that Musk is going to lose interest. Well, if I couldn't fix this quickly, I'm going to go away. And, you know, that would be a, that would be bad, I think. I kind of hope he does lose interest and let somebody else start running it because my whole sense of 
of Elon Musk um, is that he's a good businessman, not a good computer guy. Um, yeah, but not that isn't necessarily an insult. He's not one of those autists who are going to get in trouble at <laughs> work. Same thing could be said of of Steve Jobs. You know, but he seems to have more fun trolling people on Twitter and coming out with these you know wild statements. Our next topic: AI, the robots will kill us. Um, he may, loves making these wild statements, but he doesn't really seem to be that into fixing Twitter. Um, I kind of wish he would lose interest in Twitter and let somebody else um, be the CEO now. Even though I, on Twitter, I voted against him stepping down as CEO. I just come up with a two two plank plan for what Musk could do. Mm-hmm. One, move Twitter out of San Francisco. Move it to Austin or someplace where there's not a, where, where everybody he comes in the door isn't the woke liberal. Right. Uh, uh, at least half the people, only half the people in Austin would be uh, woke liberals, <laughs> and uh, he could. Um, and the second thing is, I thought he shouldn't buy Substack because Substack actually does enforce free speech. Yeah. He's done a pretty pretty good job of it. And uh, and why get them messed up with Twitter? But actually, he should buy Substack and put the Substack people in charge of Twitter because they've proved. Yeah, I'd like to see the Substack people running Twitter because the, the Substack people have done you know, only great things. To, to the best of my knowledge. So chat says that I'd like San Jose. Well, I love Stanford. I, I Generally speaking, I love university towns. I love university campuses. They tend to be overwhelmingly safe spaces filled with lots of, you know, really smart people and, you know, filled with lectures and, you know, book signings and, you know, cultural events, you know, all, all the things that I'm, I'm interested in. So I love Stanford University, that campus. And, university campuses in general proven that they can do it and they presumably know computers that's the idea oh well i like that idea i want elon to stay as far away from substack as possible i'm terrified <laughs> that are the last place on the internet where there where there is free speech no keep him away stop stop um but I, right. I guess you're right and I, I mean i don't know i don't know anything about how these algorithms are put in but just go in and remove them all why should you be amplifying anybody or de-amplifying anybody i think the argument is uh they needed it to make money in other words they want to put more stuff in your feed and if you just if it's just the people you follow, that's not enough. So they want to load it up with people who you don't follow. And then the question is, who do they decide to load it up with? And that's where the algorithm selects them. Uh, really? I didn't it, think it, it, anybody it, would show up in my I, feed if I don't follow, unless they're retweeting someone. Or I have noticed there are a lot more at advertisements on Twitter now, which I don't mind at all. I thought they should have done that a long time ago. Fine. Stick the promotions in there. Fine. Spy on me. Figure out when I'm looking for new curtains and start <laughs> promoting ads for curtains. Don't. So when I was watching the Dallas Cowboys versus San Francisco 49ers game a few days ago, I wanted to quickly get, you know, the latest on Twitter analysis of what was happening. And every time I would refresh, Twitter would force feed me for you category with all sorts of tweets that were three, six, you know, 19, 24 hours old. And I just wanted the latest and greatest commentary on the bloody football game. So I had to always twit a click over to, you know, those I'm following. So this is an algorithm change in the last two months that's definitely reduced the quality of my Twitter experience. Care. I just want free speech. <laughs> well, it, it, it's, um, uh, it's, it's, you know, Mastodon supposedly doesn't have an algorithm. Under, under my theory, you, if, you, if you eliminate the algorithm, it just costs you money, okay? If Elon is so rich and so dedicated to free speech, maybe you should say, I don't care about the extra money. I'm going to forego it. I'm uh, sorry. And not I have an algorithm at all. That. I absolutely okay. do not believe that. Twitter was such a blast. It was a blast for liberals, conservatives. If liberals were upset by, by you know, hearing an opinion that they don't agree with, and apparently that is very upsetting to some liberals, don't follow that person. If that person shows up in your feed, it's only because someone you're following has retweeted that person. Okay, oh. don't follow the, unfollow them. You can mute people. You can unfollow them. But when I follow someone, I want to see their tweets. I want to see who they're retweeting. That's what I want in my Twitter feed. And if you're going to change that, and, and have some, some dorks in San Francisco tell me, we really think you should be looking at this as if I haven't already read it 800 well, times in the New York Times. You can get that People, if you just switch, switch over to the see, see only my followers on, on your I have to site. do it every time. A, I have to do it every time I sign on to Twitter. B, right. I think 
I'm sorry, I do think there's a lot of shadow banning going on. I don't think I'm seeing everybody I'm following. I don't oh, okay. think they're seeing me. I don't okay. think they're okay. seeing enough likes. So what he's doing is just driving people away from Twitter. Good luck making money now. I, I mean, I really, I used to tweet a lot more than I do now. Sometimes I'll come home from dinner, be bored, and read the New York Times and start tweeting insults at them. But really, I don't tweet half as much as I used to because I just feel like it's going into a black hole so the producers at some cable news station can go through and give it to their boss and steal it from me. Why, why should I be the unpaid intern for a cable news? Um, on the liberal side, if they're showing liberals' intensity tweets too, that could I could see where that could be annoying to them. Uh, the liberals seem to, they had a good deal with Twitter and they don't like the good deal being taken away. So uh, I, I don't exactly know what their objection is. Their objection is that they used to tweet and be be have a have a have a chorus of hosannas, how great your tweet was, and we're retweeting it and we're amplifying it, and everybody is now hating Judge Kavanaugh. Or is is the argument the uh, is the argument the uh, is the argument that now people are now arguing with them, or they're just they're just, they're just uh, you know they're not uh, not having the reach they used to have. I think uh, it's. I, I think they do have the reach they used to have, and I could be completely wrong about this. I, I, I think it's just, well, you're a liberal, you may object to this. I think it is just deep in the liberal psyche, they can't stand that conservatives are laughing and having fun. They don't even have to watch, look at those tweets, but it makes them angry that there are people like like Antensity, um, like me, like Babylon B. It makes them angry that that exists on Twitter. No, that should be banned, and if you don't ban that, I'm quitting Twitter. Because they can just, like I say, you can follow the people you want to follow. You never have to see Antensity or me or Babylon B or Libs of TikTok. I'm, um, I, 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 my, my instinct is sort of for my purposes, and I'm a small fish, not a big fish. Twitter's fine. I agree with Metaglacius. It hasn't been that much difference. I, I, I sense it's a little freer. My, I, I sense the ceiling has been lifted, but I'm not really attracting that many people. I've gained 100 followers. Uh, very excited about that. Uh, and I just don't think it's that bad. I think, I think Musk hasn't screwed it up. He hasn't really made it that much better, uh, but it's okay. Okay, I'm just going to accuse you of sucking up to Musk right now, hoping he won't shadow ban you by pretending it isn't a total disaster. <laughs> Uh, well, I've been known to do that. <laughs> I don't know if you so. remember. One of the really fun things about Twitter back when Twitter was fun, um, after Peter Thiel destroyed Gawker and the whole story came out, all these liberal journalists, or journalists, I don't know if they were all liberals, but probably, they all started tweeting, I think Peter Thiel is the handsomest, smartest person I have ever seen. <laughs> Which is pretty clever. <laughs> okay, um, let's see. What Do you have anything else on this I want to say? Oh, I was dying to ask you about this. Two of them. So when the Cowboys were, were playing the 49ers a few days ago, I went to the Kuji Sports Bar. I thought, oh, let's have a you know, big communal experience. And I was worried that it would sell out, that it would be packed and I wouldn't be able to get in. This is how, like, out of touch with reality. So I get to the Kuji Sports Bar, and I am the only customer there, right? This is, this is 10 minutes before the game kicks off. I am the only customer there. And and people ask me, oh, where where do you plan to you know watch these you know great you know NFL games? And I said, oh, I'm going to go to the Kuji Sports Bar, and so I was anticipating you know running into a lot of my mates there, you know making new friends that you know a bunch of Americans would show up, and you know it'd just be a riotous time. Well, I get to the Kuji Sports Bar, right? No one's there, right? The the uh, Cincinnati Bengals defeat of the Buffalo Bills has has concluded, and. They're only showing the NFL game on like a small side screen and and they're playing music. So you can't hear any commentary. They're just playing music. And on the big screen is the Australian Open. So before I, you know, start spending the, the big bucks on, you know, Coke Zero, I, I asked them, Oh, can you, you know, put on the 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 forty nine versus Dallas game? And I said, No, can you put on the gridiron game on on the main screen? And they tell me, no, management, management decision, right? On the main screen, it's going to be Australian Open tennis. So it's kind of hard 
for me to imagine because I just find American sports absolutely captivating, particularly the National Football League. And and it's kind of amazing that uh, when, when the Super Bowl is played, you'll only have about 5 million people outside of North America who are going to watch the Super Bowl live. So when the World Cup final is played, you'll have about 2 billion people around the world watching live. But when you have you know, American baseball, American basketball, or American gridiron football uh, televised live, you'll only have like a million, two million other people around the world. So it's the American century yet again, but not with regard to sports. So the world's sports still overwhelmingly English. Coming up. Okay, go ahead. Number one um, is the 2024 Senate contest really so favorable to the GOP? I had thought it was. You apparently do not think so, so I'm dying to know. No, I mean, it, 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 it's um, uh, the, the, the press is saying, well, the Republicans didn't do well at this last thing, but they look at the number of open uh, of seats that have to be defended, and, and, and they sort of instinctively go to the well. The, Repo- the Democrats are defending more seats, so it's, it's obviously this is the Republicans' big chance, and the Democrats you know, are in deep, deep trouble. Look at the list of the eight, the eight most vulnerable Democratic senators. Kristen Sinema, open seat in Michigan. John Tester, Jackie Rosen in Nevada. Sherrod Brown in Ohio. Uh, Casey in Pennsylvania, Manchin in West Virginia, Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin. Uh, those are easily seats that the, the Democrats could win. The Republicans could go 0 to 8, 0 for 8 in these seats. It's, it's like it could easily be a repeat of 2022 oh. where the, the Republicans don't gain any. Those aren't easy seats. There's not a there's not an abject loser like Jones in Alabama in the bunch. Uh, they're see. all people who are at least going to get 48 percent and they might get 51 percent. Oh, I, I mean, see. Sherrod Brown has won has won difficult races before. Tester has run two, at least two diff- difficult races. So on the plane over, I watched a terrific Indian film called 83. So it came out in 2021. And it was about India winning the 1983 World Cup of cricket, the, the 60 over one, one day version of cricket. And I just love underdog sports dramas. I, I don't remember ever being disappointed by an underdog uh, sports film. And until 1983, in this particular World Cup, India had never even won a a you know limited overs one day game, except in a match against East Africa. And there's no country East Africa; it was just a bunch of Indians living in East Africa who played the Indian team. So the West Indies were the dominant cricket team, and these matches for the 1983 World Cup of cricket were played in England. Uh, West Indies were the overwhelming favorite. They just had this killer pace attack you know they're they're bowling the ball at 100 miles an hour and most of the batsmen you know have very little equipment i mean you look at it and it's kind of horrifying how the batsmen are getting hit by a cricket ball which is about as hard as a baseball you know sometimes traveling 100 miles an hour and they don't even have a proper helmet on so what was revealing in particular about this movie 83 is that uh, India was in the grip of all sorts of you know racial, religious, ethnic violence. And so generally speaking, it was Muslims versus Hindus. And you know all over the country, there were these you know outbreaks of ethnic violence. And then when when India gets through to the semifinals, the Prime Minister of India, as portrayed in this fictionalized movie, says, "Hey, we need to get." you know, the whole country rallying around the India cricket team. Let's make sure everyone can see it. So they, they take steps so that even people in rural areas can can watch the cricket. And the movie shows 
uh, you know, Muslims and, and Hindus sitting down together to support the Indian cricket team. So sports is a great way to connect people, like even antisocial losers, even people who are habitually awkward around themselves, let alone other people, can connect. It's so easy to connect via, you know, just a mild, moderate amount of sports fandom. If if your country, right, is playing in, you know, the, the World Cup of Soccer or the World Cup of Cricket, right, it's, it's contagious. Like, all sorts of people around you are wrapped. And so the, the normal, you know, ethnic and religious conflicts that may go on in your society are going to be pushed to the margins when your your country's focus is instead on sports. So one, it saves a lot of lives because a lot of people who are incredibly lonely and isolated can finally connect with other people because it takes very little effort to connect with others when there's a sports mania sweeping your nation. So it gives people human connection and meaning and purpose. Two, it gives people connection, meaning, and purpose that transcends, you know, typical ethnic and religious bigotries. So it's it's a great nationalism force. You know, nationalism is what makes you know national sports so much fun. When you see Iceland playing in the you know European Cup for for, for soccer, defeating England and the whole nation of Iceland, you know, uniting behind their their soccer team, right? When, when you can bring people together and give them something you know, a shared experience, like a shared locus of attention, then a shared experience that then connects people. And when you connect people and give them a shared locus of attention, you energize people. And who doesn't need more energy and connection? And so out of that shared locus of attention, that energy, all right, that that connection, you know, that growth in nationalism, you also always get an ethic where people tend to take, you know, better care of their in-group, so people will increase in their in-group identity. So India had all these problems, and uh, the the film also emphasizes kind of a chip on a shoulder Indian nationalism. So it, it portrays the the English and and non-Indians frequently as being snooty and smug and superior and taunting and, and victimizing. So you can't have in-group identity without a substantial component of victimization. So you often hear rhetoric, oh, you know, you should never feel like a victim or being a victim sucks. Excessive amount of victimization usually doesn't serve you, but a moderate amount. So you see, you know, how Indians got a chip on their shoulder because they felt they were being talked down to by the English and by other countries and nobody expected anything of them in this uh, cricket tournament. So a moderate chip on your shoulder, a small, mild chip on your shoulder will frequently serve you. Right? You're frequently better off with a mild chip on your shoulder than if you have no chip on your shoulder. Because if you have a mild chip on your shoulder, that will provide you with better relationships with other people in your in-group. It will provide you a stronger in-group identity, which will give you more clarity and purpose in your life. And you'll get along better with the people who are most you know, copacetic with you. So mild, moderate chip on your shoulder, that's frequently a good thing. And that's displayed throughout this this movie. So, terrific underdog sports movie, 1983. Putin agrees he loves sports, wants it to be apolitical. Anything, when you can unite people, get people participating in something, even if it's just watching, get people to share a focus of attention. Like, even if you were just go marching with other blokes, 
right? You would get energy from that and you would get a sense of connection if, you know, you possibly could get on the same page with, with other people. And out of that, you know, marching around on a, a playing field, right, you would then develop an ethic because you would start to bond with people. When I go to a sports bar in LA, I, I think I've only done it once. That, that I, oh, no. I've done it once in since 2008. So in, do you remember November 2007? The New England Patriots were undefeated and the Dallas Cowboys only had one loss. So it was something like the 8-0 Patriots were traveling to Dallas to take on the 7-1 Cowboys. And it wasn't being shown over the air in Los Angeles. So I went to that that heterosexual sports bar in West Hollywood that used to have that those horrible, horrible signs, no F-A-G-G-O-T-S allowed, disavow, disavow, uh, Barney's Beanery. So I went there to, you know, watch the, the Cowboys lose to the Patriots, but so much energy is just a packed house. Uh, yeah, I need to get out there, spend more time in, in sports bars, or just more time connecting with other people because it can be awkward at first and it can be scary and you can, you know, feel like a loser on the outside and it's unfamiliar. That's how often how I experience it. But uh, yeah, there, there can be a barrier of entry that's, that can be real. But uh, if you push through that, there can be you know, very substantial rewards. So the movie's called 1983. It's an Indian film. Thumbs up from, from 40. Right, a brewery's anti-violence mission was complicated by a killing. Pretty shocking. It's from the uh, New Yorker. Father, before issuing a public statement the day after the murders. In the statement, he described Williams, whom he admitted he did not know, as a young woman with her whole life ahead of her. He described Tyson as a friend and as one of the incredible and selfless people at True whose work had undoubtedly saved countless lives he noted that tyson was not the first person connected with true to have been killed and acknowledged that he had not commented publicly about the previous deaths i just have reached a point he wrote and true colors has reached a point where i think others need to begin to understand the story that taylor tells about his company begins with the shooting it started about two and a half years ago he told a conference of entrepreneurs in Raleigh in 2018 when, two days before Christmas, there was a 16-year-old that got shot in a drive-by and killed about, I don't know, six or seven blocks up from my office. This happened on Castle Street, near downtown. The victim was a high school student named Shane Simpson. I didn't even know we had gangs involved in Wilmington, Taylor said. I live in a gated community. And we have different kinds of gangs there. Taylor is 61, but he speaks and dresses like a younger man, favoring F-bombs and flannel shirts with rolled up sleeves. He grew up in Richmond. Okay, interesting article in the New Yorker Brewery's anti-violence mission complicated by a killing. Who knew that when you employ members of rival gangs that uh, doesn't exactly conduce to you know, peace and love? Right, Tucker Carlson says Antifa's back in force. But first, good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Whatever happened to Antifa? Ever wonder that? 
the shadowy, heavily armed left-wing militia group, the guys dressed like stormtroopers in black masks. You remember them, of course, well from the summer of 2020. They burned our cities that year, churches and police stations and courthouses. Now, the point of the violence they committed, the extensive violence and the killings they committed, was to defeat Donald, Donald Trump, make the country so chaotic that voters would want to change. And they were effective in doing that, so effective that Kamala Harris herself raised money to bail them out of jail. In the end, Antifa played a pivotal role in our presidential election that year, more so than any other organized block of voters. Then, the moment Joe Biden was inaugurated, Antifa seemed to disappear. Nobody asked any questions about where they went, much less about who they were or who was paying them. They'd serve their purpose, and then they left. So in retrospect, it's very clear who Antifa was and is. Antifa is the armed instrument of the permanent Democratic establishment in Washington. Their job is to mobilize when politically necessary. Now, this is a new thing in the United States, but political militia are a common feature in third world politics. They are a staple in Haiti. In our country, however, only one party has them, the Democratic Party. They're the only ones with armed militia in the street. So with that in mind, it's interesting to note that Antifa is back in force. And that's probably not a very good sign for Joe Biden. If nothing else, Antifa has a solid track record of getting rid of sitting presidents. Here's a report from Fox 5 in Atlanta over the weekend. Police arrested six people in the violent protest that left several buildings damaged and a police car destroyed after it was set on fire. Downtown Atlanta erupted into a scene of chaos Saturday night. As a protest took a violent turn, at least three buildings were damaged when rioters threw bricks and rocks shattering windows. At least two police cars were targeted, one even lit on fire. Atlanta police say within two blocks of the protesters starting their destruction, they dispersed the crowd. Six people were arrested. All of them are facing eight charges, including domestic terrorism and arson. Only one is a Georgia resident. Unleash the wackos. Somebody has unleashed the wackos. There's always a pretext for this. There's always a story they tell you to pretend it's spontaneous. It just happened. They just got so mad that they flew in from all over the country to stage a riot. Now, the story behind this riot, the one you're seeing on TV, is that a guy called Tortuguida, apparently an Antifa environmentalist, a person who uses they, it as pronouns, decided to shoot a state trooper in Georgia, and then the cops shot back and killed it in response. So that's the story they're telling to explain the riots. It doesn't make a lot of sense, actually, but everyone in the media is running with this, CNN included and especially. CNN, in fact, turned to a freelance reporter called David Pizer to explain exactly what happened this weekend in Atlanta. Watch this. There's a real blurring of the lines in the use of the word violence. Is property destruction violence? Um, to some people, it certainly is. Um, but, uh, you know, th this idea that breaking windows or, or, or other acts of property destruction are the same as uh, actual violence against humans uh, is it, it, it's, it's kind of a dangerous and, and slippery concept. You keep using these words, violent, 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 um, and it, it gives the impression, I mean, the only violence that, that or, or 
the only acts of, of violence against people that I saw were, were actually police tackling protesters. Why does every neoliberal talk like a sociology professor at a community college? You ever notice that? So that's David Peisner, identified by CNN as a freelance journalist, explaining that actually it's not really violence because it's against property. So when they burn your house down, it's not violence. It's not violence. It's always the same script. Remember when Ali Velshi stood in front of a burning police station in Minneapolis and told you the protests were, quote, not generally speaking unruly, except for, of course, the torch police station right behind us. Or when CNN told us the protests, the protests, the riots in Kenosha were fiery but mostly peaceful. <laughs> Meanwhile, people were being killed. They're still saying it, but this time they're even lazier and more corrupt. That freelance reporter David Peisner you just saw on CNN is not actually a reporter. He's a professional Antifa apologist. He is a fellow traveler for Antifa. And we're not just guessing at that. This week, he went on Twitter to raise money for Antifa, including a GoFundMe for Tortuguida, the attempted cop killer with the confusing pronouns. That's the guy CNN is calling a reporter, freelance reporter. So the question is not, is CNN dishonest? Oh, they'll say anything. The question is why this particular brand of dishonesty why are the same people who warned you about right-wing extremists walking around the Capitol running cover for domestic terrorism in the city they're based in? Keep in mind, this is CNN saying this, and it was CNN whose headquarters, its world headquarters, CNN Center in Atlanta, was destroyed by Antifa in May of 2020 after St. George Floyd died. Remember that? In case you don't, here's the tape. So that day in May of 2020, Antifa actually got inside CNN Center. They smashed through the windows and went right in. So if you're CNN, you'd say, well, look, we're going to have to put Antifa on the do not promote list. We just can't. We just can't run cover for the people who smashed the windows of our world headquarters. But they are. They're doing it anyway. Why are they doing that? Because CNN is not actually on the left. They have no ideology or beliefs. CNN is above all and always four square on the side of the people in charge. Always. That's who they run cover for. So they're not actually defending Antifa. They're defending the people who benefit from Antifa. And that's the Democratic Party. And in case you doubt the connection, consider Representative Catherine Clark of Massachusetts. She, her. Catherine Clark is one of the most senior Democrats in the House of Representatives. In fact, she's the minority whip. She's the one who was so worried about climate change. Remember, she, she told you that her kids were having nightmares about it. Didn't stop her from buying a million-dollar oceanfront home, but whatever. So Catherine Clark's own son, Jared Dowell, was riding along with Antifa in Boston on Saturday night. He was vandalizing a monument on Boston Common when police tried to arrest him. Jared Dowell and other protesters then assaulted the police, causing the specific officer to bleed from the nose and mouth. Oh, that was her son. So Catherine Clark was forced to issue a statement about this, of course. By the way, stop talking about her personal life. If you knew what the personal lives of the people who run the Democratic Party are actually like, you would understand their politics much better. So Catherine Clark issues a statement and refers to her son as her, quote, daughter, huh, of course, and wrote that, quote, this is a very difficult time in the cycle of joy and pain in parenting. <laughs> it's just, you know, part of the cycle. 
where your adult son pretends to be a woman and attacks police officers. Totally normal. It's just part of the, the cycle of parenting. Yeah. Again, if you knew the details of their personal lives, you would understand their politics. This is the party of weak men and unhappy women. But what you have in effect here is the official endorsement of domestic terrorism from the highest level of the Democratic Party. And why wouldn't you? Again, this is their militia. These are their state-sanctioned shock troops, and they are effectively immune from criticism. So you go to jail for owning a 10-round magazine, but they get to do whatever they want. Merrick Garland and Christopher Wray, who runs the FBI, are making certain that every last January 6th defendant spends years in jail. Their lives are destroyed on the no-fly list. And yet Antifa terrorists get released almost as soon as they're arrested. This weekend in Atlanta, the police arrested the 22-year-old son of a surgeon in Kennebunkport, Maine, called Francis Carroll. Now, in case you're wondering <laughs> who these people are, well, they come from the key Democratic demographic which of course is not people of color, working people. That's nonsense. The key democratic demographic is upscale professionals and their lunatic children. So this kid grew up in a $2 million mansion, pictures of him on his father's yacht. He was arrested on domestic terrorism charges a month ago in Atlanta. He assaulted police officers and terrorized residents. Is he still there? No, he got out of jail immediately. So then apparently he went again to an Antifa riot. This weekend in Atlanta, police say Carroll went out and committed some more domestic terrorism, including arson. So why does this kid, the rich kid, get off when the people who showed up at the Capitol, consistent with their constitutional rights to complain about what really did seem like fraud in the 2020 election, they went to jail? Well, have you ever checked the percentage of January 6th defendants who've experienced a personal bankruptcy? much higher than average. These were actual working class people, deeply frustrated, completely out of options and unheard by everyone in Washington. It's not an excuse for the vandalism some of them committed, but it tells you it's a very different group of people. They didn't go to Middlebury. Or... Oh, I am back in Los Angeles and I am wondering, wondering why can't we have... Nice things. This is the Sydney Botanical Gardens. Yesterday. Okay, mate, 40 here. It's really weird walking through the Royal Botanical Gardens here in Sydney. And like, where's the crime? Where's the dysfunction? Like, river. Right by the central business district, right by the opera house. But like, where's the rape? Looking into the bushes, I don't see any raping going on. I didn't see any grievous bodily harm being inflicted. Like, where's the trash? Where's the graffiti? Where are the homeless, the drug addicts, the panhandlers? Like, where are all the people who? Let me know that I'm in a big city. I'm in the States. Like, how do you, how do you maintain all these delicate ecosystems? How do you maintain all this you know, exquisite plant life and animal life? Like, where's the blaring rap music? 
There's the blaring mariachi music. Where are the... So this is a video that I took yesterday in the Royal Botanical Gardens in Sydney near the Opera House. Vibrant gangs of youths wilding. This is really weird. I'm in the Royal Botanical Gardens and there's no bloody wilding going on. How can I be in the central business district of Australia's biggest city? There's not even any wilding going on. Where are the youths rampaging and destroying? Where's the graffiti? Where's everything that makes, you know, vibrant big city America so vibrant? Just where's the vibrance here? It just doesn't seem very vibrant. I mean, we've got tons of diversity, but no vibrance Los Angeles style or New York style, right? You've got, got that big park in Manhattan, right? You get lots of wilding and raping and all sorts of horrible stuff going on. And where are the where are the alarms? Where are the police sirens? Where are the ambulance sirens? Where are the police helicopters like shining a light? Where are the bullhorns? Where are the angry protesters? I've been in Australia for three months. No one said anything to me about how black lives matter. Did black lives matter to you, Karen? Did black lives matter to you? Where's the, where's the concern? Where's the activism? Where's the apocalyptic sense that the world's coming to an end, that the country's convulsing into a civil war? Instead, we're right on the verge of Australia Day. People are just happy, going for a walk with their family and friends, stretching their legs, taking a break from work, going back to school in a week or so. So, which way, Western man? Which way? What do you want? What do you want more of? Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter, right, Karen? Fucking white piece of shit, you little fucking cussy ass bitch! Oh yeah, you wanna fucking go, Karen? No! No! Until black lives matter! Until black lives matter, no life matters! That is not our fight. Until black lives mean something to this country. No. No. Until black Humiliate them! I am coming back here every fucking weekend, my ass!
So, which way, Western man? Such a shame that Australia lacks the vibrancy of American big cities. It's just so quiet and tranquil and people enjoying themselves. This isn't a big city. Like, where's the fear? I'm just not detecting any fear. What the hell? Where's the fear, guys? Where's the... the dread? Where's the worry just written all over people's faces? Like, how do you... how do you maintain all this nice stuff? How do you maintain all this you know, delicate life? We maintain the pleasant, sensitive public spaces. I mean, if this was Los Angeles, all this would be torn up, ripped up, graffitied, trashed. Where's the where's the tr trash after a good quinceanera? No one's blaring any rap music, man. That's weird. Like, where are the packs of youths making life miserable for everyone else? I mean, how does Australia get to have nice things? Like, what, what is it about Australians that just uh, makes them so nice and law-abiding? Original Australians came here as convicts. Yeah, how do they turn into such a law-abiding people? Yeah, I see tons of diversity. It seems to be a type of diversity that works. Apparently there's some diversity that works. Other types of diversity lead to conflagration. So there's a sign, keep out of the flowers. And it's amazing, people obey the directives. What kind of society is this where people follow the rules? Where people don't just trash public spaces for the fun of it? Now we've got all this diversity of plant life. We can only thrive because we have a cooperative citizenry and we have law enforcement that are willing to incentivize people to follow the law. Where's the anger? Where's the tension and stress written all over people's faces? Where's that haunted feeling that you don't have any health insurance? 
and you're in desperate straits you might be going homeless there's the sense that you're living life on the edge that the game has been rigged against you we're living in the end times doesn't seem to be any of that. Where's the moral panic? Where are the hysterias? Where are the women with blue hair? Don't see as many piercings. See a lot more piercings in Los Angeles. Now there are a lot more tattoos. Australia compared to 30 or 40 years ago but uh, they haven't kept up with the piercings where's the anger at society anger at the parents anger at the patriarchy where's the bloody anger mate where are the expressions of rage where's the senseless destruction Where's the tearing up of everything that's pretty and sensitive and sweet and delicate just for the fun of destruction? Where are the super predators? Maybe the super predators are behind the bushes here. And you're just missing them. How do they get to have nice public facilities that aren't trashed and used for drug deals and prostitution? Where are the homeless encampments? Where are the strung out addicts and alcoholics? Where are the runaway kids? And even the animals, even the ducks don't have fear. How come you don't have any fear, mate? Where's your sense of fear? Don't you have any sense of danger? You don't seem afraid, mate. I just wonder, can, can uh, Los Angeles sustain something like this? Man, so boring. I mean, why can't we have, you know, exciting, you know, Black Lives Matter action? I'm at the point where I'm going to put these police in a fucking grave. I'm at the point where I want to burn the fucking White House down. I want to take it to the senators. I want to take it to the Congress. I want to take the fight to them. And at the end of the day, if they ain't going to hear us, we burn them the fuck down. I'm one that talk real shit. I talk it in New York, and I talk it in D.C. The same way I fuck police up in New York, I fuck cops up here in D.C. The same way I bust police in the head in New York, I bust police in the head in D.C. Now, it's a lot of people, and I'm going to be honest, it's a lot of people that's on this front line. 
And one of the things that I always say, don't get on this fucking front line if you ain't gonna fucking fight. Don't get on this front line if you ain't gonna take no hit. Don't get on this front line when the police fucking push up, you push back. If you won't be on this front line and them racist ass, nasty ass, punk ass fucking police is pushing up, you push them. Wow, powerful stuff. Well, Idaho is not as racist as everyone thinks it is. So we are out in the middle of the desert. We're driving along. Mm-hmm. And I see a car that's broken down. Mm-hmm. And there's a black man. Now, there is not a very whole lot of black people here in Idaho, right? Not a lot. So I'm thinking nobody else is probably going to stop to help this man. Mm-mm, so I'm no just way. like, you know what? You know what? We should stop. We should stop and help this man. No, we shouldn't. I'm like, what? And she's like, ah. No. I'm just like, you know, no one else is going to stop. Not my problem. And I'm like, come on, we got to help this guy out. No, we don't. Does he... <laughs> no. No, so, we do not. So see, see, I just gotta say, like right now, like she said, we already had too many we black had, people yeah, in, in the car. Too many niggas already in this in this little vicinity. It's too many. She said ninjas. Ninjas. That was ninjas for anyone that that she she has a speech impediment. That was a. Uh, I a little slow. <laughs> anyway, she wouldn't let me stop. She wouldn't let me help the guy. No. You know how much hotter it would be in this vehicle if we put that black man in here? And then, I just know her because I know she's going to be like, well, what do we get robbed? <laughs> mm-hmm. And if we did, I'd blame it all on him because you was the one. We'd be sitting time. there and I'd just be looking over like, mm, okay, mm-hmm. that yep. was my bad. Yep, your fault. I don't watch, I, I just can't deal with these racists, these no, racists these over racist here. Racist people out Racists. Here. Tell me about it. They just ruined me. Just disrespectful. I late. Now, what she doesn't know, we're driving back the same way. Be still there. I'm stopping. He can try. I'm stopping. I'm going to push the gas pedal. There's people walking around being happy. I mean, do we need a common culture in Los Angeles? I respect for private property, public property, for plant diversity, human biodiversity. Can we have a common culture where people who are predatory and destructive, uh, they're removed from polite society so that good people can enjoy public spaces like these? like a quarter mile from the central business district. They've got all these skyscrapers looming above Royal Botanical Gardens. They've got the hustle and bustle of the big city in one of the safest cities in the world. This isn't Tokyo. This isn't Hong Kong. This isn't one of those law-abiding East Asian communities. This is a fair dinkum Australian community. Beautiful flowers, luscious wildlife. 
and uh, it's just a welcome place. Got birds and ducks. Yeah, pretty pretty boring, man. Where's the where's the vibrancy? They said grab her by the pussy. Well, she's a cat, so <laughs> no, no. I'm saying touch. No, that that's that's equivalent, you know. Baked Alaska. Uh, are you single? Yes. Can I get your number? No? Damn, why not? She's 13. How old are you? No, that's a lie. Really? Come here. Let's go. Really? Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. 618 Yeah. Ebony and Ivory living together in perfect harmony. I wonder if we can learn anything from what the Australians have constructed here. We can take back to America's big cities. Or is what Australians have constructed here only possible with a certain mix of people, certain social arrangements, certain immigration policies, certain law and order policies. Now, could we have all this while allowing millions of illegal immigrants to pour over the border? Like somehow I don't think that we could enjoy all this if you had millions of illegal immigrants. Okay, so imagine that there was a border like five miles from here millions of illegal immigrants were pouring through. You think that uh, these royal botanical gardens look like this? You had hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants pouring through, uh, staying the night, using the public facilities, doing drug deals, murdering and raping bringing their problems with them, bringing drugs, bringing crime, they're rapists, and some I assume are nice people. And this is a sanctuary from illegal aliens, sanctuary from super predators, sanctuary from the revolutionary mindset, from anarchist and communist agitation. Maybe when you see all this, you see white supremacy. Is this the beautiful false face of white supremacy? Yeah, sure, it all looks very pretty, but what about the patriarchal ugliness behind it? The Christian supremacism, the white racialism, the exclusive immigration policies that allow, sure, this is all very beautiful, but it's hiding the ugly face of white supremacy. your well-being, we ask that you keep to the paths and avoid touching the plants. So if we had millions of illegal immigrants passing through who weren't able to read these notices, 
even if they were able to read them, do you think they'd respect them? I think they don't respect the law of the land to come here illegally, but you think with all this delicate wildlife, this delicate diversity to millions of illegal immigrants pouring through here, do you think they'd be very respectful of this? I mean, could you have this on the southern border of the United States? Is this the sort of thing you can only have in places very exclusive like Martha's Vineyard, Manhattan, Beverly Hills? I'm just like humbled by all this beauty. It kind of reminds you of your proper place in the universe. It centers you, it cleanses you, realigns you. And doggone, it makes me a little angry that we can't have more places like this in Los Angeles. So many of our beautiful public spaces have been trashed, filled with litter. We have gangs, astronomical rates of criminal activity, drug dealing, violence, rape. Because we don't lock these people up like we used to. Right in the 1990s, we were going in the right direction. People who did heinous things were put away in prison, kept away from decent people. And now you can steal up to $950 in California and it's only a misdemeanor. And if you had those kind of rules here, you think that you'd be able to have these Oriental gardens these botanical gardens. All this beauty and curated biodiversity. I walk through here and I just kind of mourn what California has lost. California used to be America's last best hope. Just a great place to be an average bloke. Land of opportunity. Into the 1960s you didn't have to lock your doors at night or lock your car doors in the San Fernando Valley. That's all been trashed, thrown away under an influx of illegal immigrants. Now I can't even talk to half the people in Los Angeles because they don't speak English. And when Sam Yorty was defeated by Bradley, mayor of Los Angeles circa 1970, everything started going downhill after that. We had Richard Reardon for two terms in the 1990s as a moderate Republican. Right. We got the city back on track.
Yeah, now New York City, Chicago, Los Angeles, America's biggest cities. How steadily they've gone downhill since the 1960s. Then a brief interregnum in the Republicans. Think about how Mayor Giuliani turned around New York City. Mayor Bloomberg did a pretty good job too. And all that progress was trashed under Bill de Blasio. You build something special and sacred. Then you see all the gains dissipated. So you abandon the rule of law. Start incentivizing antisocial behavior and not punishing it by subsidizing it. This will Los Angeles would be filled with homeless, with derelicts, with drug addicts, with criminals, with gangs, with youths, with joggers. I haven't seen one policeman since I've been walking around here for the past two hours. It's not like you've got the oppressive you know, police monitoring every corner, every alley, every plant. gangs tagging their territory. Where are the rap artists? It's the vibrant news hanging out CDs of their rap music and then accosting you for money. Where are the fights between the hobos and the derelicts? Where are the stabbings? Got all this cover, all these bushes and trees behind which to do dark deeds. I don't know, here at the Royal Botanical Gardens, I don't see a lot of uh, dark deeds going on. I just see frond memories, and freaks of nature. That makes you want to go tropo, eh, mate? So you don't really have the tropics in the United States, but you have them here in Australia. Just like you, every plant has a family, and family members are easy to spot if you know what to look for. Wow, that sounds like stereotyping. Stereotyping plants, stereotyping people. 
kind of stereotypes around here, mate. And the battle against ignorance and bigotry and stereotypes is never won. You have to wage it anew each day in new ways. All these people thinking that they can just stereotype plant families, animal families, that you know, different subspecies have different characteristics. And this hateful idea that you know, some dogs are more dangerous than other dogs, some dogs are more intelligent than other dogs, and some mixtures of subspecies are more conducive to harmony than other mixtures. Oh, the battle of this kind of stereotypical, racist, bigoted, ignorant thinking. It's never won, mate. It's never won. So these baby eels squirm across the damp grass at night from the harbor. Then you'll see the fluffy ducklings taken by an eel. It's the way of nature. Ducks in turn find baby eels a tasty meal. all these ducks and birds and plants getting side by side. Can't we all just get along? How did they create Sydney as one of the safest cities in the world? Like, what are the ingredients? Can they be reproduced in the United States? It feels like uh, people in Australia are doing something right. How did they create this harmonious, cohesive, high-trust society? Right? You see people clutching their purses and their bags for fear that they're going to be ripped out of their hands. Like, where are the purse snatchers? I don't see any purse snatchers here. I do see a few joggers, but they don't seem to be invading construction sites and stealing things. This has more of the ethos of uh, that uh, Asian student on college campus who said, this is library. People study here. This is the library. This is botanical gardens. People are kind and pleasant, harmonious here. No purse snatching, no rioting. This is 40 show. We are nice and law abiding here. This is 40 show. Chat says, do Australians make New Year's resolutions? Uh, probably, but it's not nearly as big a deal in Australia as it is in America. So America is much more individualist, you know, striving type of uh, society. This is library and this is the 40 show. So there was an American who built a lot of uh, beautiful parks. His name was Robert Moses, and he is profiled in a 1974 book by Robert Caro, The Power Broker. Now, this is what's so terribly disturbing about Robert Moses. You may not realize this, but he was a racist. 
he was a big, bad racist. So Theodore Roosevelt wouldn't interfere even when he found out that Robert Moses, who's Jewish, so you'd think he'd understand oppression and racism, but Roosevelt wouldn't intervene when he found out that Robert Moses was discouraging black people from using many of his state parks. So apparently underlying Robert Moses's strikingly strict policing for cleanliness in his parks was a deep distaste for the public that was using them. He doesn't love the people. He's doing all these things for the welfare of the people, but Robert Moses would denounce the common people terribly. To him, they were lousy, dirty people throwing bottles all over Jones Beach. I'll get them. I'll teach them. He loves the public, but not his people. The public is just the public. It's just a great amorphous mass to him. It needs to be bathed. It needs to be aired. It needs recreation, but not for personal reasons, just to make it a better public. So Robert Moses began taking measures to limit use of his parks. Can you believe that? I mean, how racist is that? He started limiting the use of parks. He tried to discourage people that he thought were, he started anti-social. This is library. This is library. <laughs> this is library. This is library. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, New York Post. Now, now, great. Now, now, media hits. If I get a, a copyright bother, I'm, I'm going to blame it on you. All right, Robert Moses, man. This guy created beautiful parks, but he was he was racist, right? He restricted the use of state parks by the people who he thought would damage them, such as poor people, lower middle class people. He limited access to the parks by rapid transit. Can you believe that? And he considered black people inherently dirty. Wow. Uh, buses carrying black groups were shunted to the furthest reaches of the parking area. Black people were discouraged from using white beach areas, such as the best beaches. He was convinced that black people did not like cold water, so he kept the temperature at the pool at Jones Beach deliberately icy to keep black people out. Negro civic groups from the hot New York City slums began to complain about this treatment. Roosevelt investigated, found out that Bob Moses was trying to discourage large Negro parties from picnicking at Jones Beach, attempting to divert them to some of the other state parks. So Robert Moses, crazy man, he thought that what black people like to do was mostly sing and dance. So when he had opening ceremonies for the Colonial Park Pool in Harlem, he included an exhibition by Bojangles Bill Robinson, a black tap dancer. He built one pool in Harlem, and he determined it was going to be the only pool that black people, he, he classed Puerto Ricans as black, were going to use. He didn't want them mixing with white people in other pools because he was afraid that trouble, bites, and riots would result. So he discouraged black people from using the Thomas Jefferson pool. 
He employed only white lifeguards and attendants. Man, the, the extent that this guy went, you know, promoting this racist agenda. So he had this idea that black people don't like cold water. So he kept swimming pools that uh, black people might like to use, kept them icy cold. Other swimming pools, he kept at comfortable 70 degrees. So whether it was with the temperature or by flagging or the glowering looks flung at black people by the park department attendants and lifeguards, right, you could go to all these pools near the slums, near the black slums, and you would not see a single non-Caucasian face. So black people lived only a half a mile away, would travel instead to Colonial Park three miles away instead of using their neighborhood pool. And then in the Harlem section of Riverside Park, the wrought iron trellises of the park's playhouses and comfort stations, right? Normally he'd decorate them with designs like curling waves, but in Harlem, he decorated them with monkeys. So Robert Moses regarded black people as that scum floating up from Puerto Rico that was befouling his parks. So individuals and communities need guardrails. People need to be incentivized to stay on the straight and narrow. And when they start acting in an antisocial manner, they need to be held accountable as quickly as possible. An appropriate levels of deterrence so that you can maintain civilizations like this. And if there's no deterrence for trashing the Royal Botanical Gardens, they wouldn't be here to enjoy. There's no deterrence with seizing someone's purse, stealing someone's pizza, for invading someone's home, for spray painting. Right. No graffiti. How do they manage to create this safe space for no graffiti? This doesn't look like Mexico. This doesn't look like Central or South America. This doesn't look like New York City, Los Angeles, or Chicago. It's always different. How do you develop a community that's so pro-social, I trust, socially cohesive, altruistic? Willing to sacrifice for the greater good, a sense of unifying culture. Australia has a dominant culture. Everybody says Merry Christmas or Merry Chrissy. 
I'm not greeted by happy holidays. Yeah. There's one dominant heritage. Yeah. One dominant ethos. One dominant morality. I don't even whether that's going to one dominant moral standard for behavior. Wednesday Arvo. It's about 5.30 p.m. It's January 25, the day before Australia Day, 2023. Ride these beautiful ferries around for maximum price is about $15 Australian, which is currently about uh, $11 American. You can take the ferry up to Parramatta, about a 45-minute journey. I ride the, the light rail and the trains and the buses all day for about a dollar. When you go to a pub or a convenience store, you don't get ripped off. The prices are pretty similar on a lot of goods wherever you are in Australia. So Australia has a federalist system, but you don't have the dramatic variety of the United States. The laws are still pretty similar throughout Australia, as opposed to the differences between New York City and Alabama and Mississippi and Arkansas and Seattle. As there's one culture, it's a lot easier to get things done. People agree on more things. There's less need for culture war or conflict. This is a country too busy having fun to hate, mate. People just want to be with their friends and their family, make money, see their hobbies, enjoy their gorgeous public spaces. Australia's beaches are Australia's cathedrals. You get to have all these public works and public concerts, public goods. You have a country that's united around what's best for Australia. Australians aren't outwardly patriotic as Americans. But they're much more cohesive, trusting, altruistic, willing to work together for what's best for Australia. So Australians are nationalistic in their own way. For many Australians, particularly the least educated ones, you know, if you're not Australian, you have nothing. 
the Australian elites and the Australian university educated, but they have a lot in common with the university educated. So one thing that was driven home to me from my travels is frequently how much more trusting high IQ people are than midwits and low IQ people. Because high IQ people you know, realize the tremendous price that one pays for breaking someone's trust. And so high IQ people are much more likely to look for win-win solutions and much more likely to be open and trusting than you know middle IQ and low IQ people. So one reason I live in Los Angeles is because of all the high IQ people that I know here. So I'm not particularly high IQ myself. I'm a perhaps a standard deviation above average, but I get to have conversations with people who are three and four standard deviations above average in IQ. And that's what's thrilling for me. Some people would be like playing catch with, with Tom Brady or Mookie Betts, you know, or shooting baskets with Michael Jordan. Right. What's thrilling for me is talking to someone who's three, four, five, you know, deviations of IQ above the average. That's thrilling. And in a big city like Los Angeles, where the future is being created, you know, you have a lot more access to that than than in Sydney. Okay, here's the uh, final parts of my video from Australia's Royal Botanical Gardens and the Sydney Opera House. I took this yesterday. Educated throughout the First World. But uh, most, most Australians don't go to university. So it used to be only up to about 5% of Australians went to university. Now that's being expanded to you know, various forms of tertiary education. But it's still not a ridiculously high percentage as you find in the United States. That's the magnificent Sydney Harbour Bridge, Sydney Opera House. Sydney is Australia's most diverse city and it's also the city where it's the most difficult to make friends. So compared to other parts in Australia, that little less cohesive and there's less volunteering in Sydney compared to other parts of Australia, so less altruism. difficult to make friends. So Sydney is famous for how difficult it is to make friends because I guess part of it is uh, most, most residents of Sydney have grown up together, gone to school together. And so you know, they hang out with that, that clique of people their entire lives. 
So Australia is also the most sexually segregated first world nation. So perhaps aside from the university crowd, uh, men basically don't open up a conversation with with women unless they're going to have a go. That's going to try to have a crack at her. And uh, you know, women you know, very rarely will initiate any conversation with a bloke. Uh, Australia is still more traditional in its male-female roles. Men are much more expected to be the aggressor. So I noticed when I moved to America like how much more assertive and aggressive the women were. Much more willing to flirt with you and reach out to you and touch you and kiss you. Have a go. Americans much more enthusiastic, much more emotional, wear their hearts on their sleeve much more than Australians. Sydney's eastern suburbs, so most people are pretty fit. Uh, you want to find fat Australians, you'll have to go inland. This is very expensive real estate. So the affluent tend to be slender, the lower classes tend to be fat and stubby. I think the difference between Wayne Rooney, he's kind of short and stubby, and uh, more aristocratic looking David Beckham. They're pretty much all soccer stars come from working class or lower, lower middle class backgrounds. So the most common name that people use for each other in Australia is mate. No, overwhelmingly men with men as oh mate or by the way mate or could you help me mate or what do you know mate how's it going mate so he speaks of genuine camaraderie and ease with each other now that can come with certain types of corruption and exclusion. That can be difficult to break through in Sydney and make friends. Right? It's a lot easier to make friends in Sydney if you make friends with other immigrants, you know, people from South Africa, Central South America, Amer Americans, North Americans, Asians. Right? People who feel a bit excluded from the, the mainstream of Sydney residents who grew up here will generally speaking be a lot easier to make friends with you know, fellow people on the fringe. The video I took uh, the day before yesterday, the edge of Sydney Harbour.
G'day mate, 40 here. Look at this lovely wedding cake cliff. So, hanging out in Royal National Park, just, uh, just south of Cronulla, where you had the Cronulla riots about 15 years ago. And uh, just thinking that uh, you get much more of fatalism in Australia compared to America. So you're much more likely to encounter the idea, oh, you can't do anything about it. Might as well just enjoy yourself. Have a good time. Right? That's, that's a much more prevalent attitude in, in Australia than America. Than America. So, you know, Australia was founded by convicts, all right? They were sent out here against their will. And then they never had to fight for their freedom like the Yanks, right? So the Americans had the, you know, the Revolutionary War had to fight for their freedom and uh, for Australians it was you know, given to them by the British Commonwealth and so I noticed that uh, Australians and also the English are much more fatalistic and uh, Americans uh, have much you know, higher estimation about what they can do right their own capabilities of like changing the government so I, I don't think like a January 6th would happen nearly as easily in Australia as America, because January 6 was, was based on the notion that you know ordinary citizens could get together and do something about a system gone insane. You know, there could be a new American revolution, and there just isn't that same revolutionary zeal in Australia. G'day mate, 40 here, listening to a podcast on Richard Spencer's Substack, redxjournal.substack, The AI Illusion, recorded December 8, 2022. This is Mark Brahman speaking. You understand your point? I mean, it's... Oh. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I think, it, uh, I think Christianity and Judaism, in a very, they are mystery religions, but implicit. Mystery religions has a meaning. It means that you have to be an initiate, initiate to gain access to the mysteries of the religion. So Judaism is like the opposite of a mystery religion. It says the Torah is not far from you. It's very close to you, and yes, you can do it. So mystery religion refers to Hellenic and Greek religions. Uh, and uh, Christianity has taken on some aspects of mystery religion. Right, you get taken into the mystery of salvation when you believe in Jesus. Uh, Judaism's not a mystery religion, right? They're positing a kind of breeding ideal. So, in other words, Yahweh is effectively, you know, when you read the Hebrew Bible, uh, Yahweh is a very, you know, he's he's certainly not Aryan. He's he's a very kind of Jewish character. He has a very kind of Jewish personality and character. Um, and so, that has a kind of uh, race or or eth ethnic forming. Um, consequence, right? Yeah, but uh, more than more than the Jewish conception of God, you know, formed the Jews. All right, the Jews formed their, their religion from the the culture and the talents of the Jewish people. Right, it wasn't wasn't a particular conception of God that uh, formed the Jewish people. When you worship a God. Worship a god like Yahweh, you sort of form a race to that type. Uh, so, in other words, it... no, you don't form a race to that type. 
right? That type resonates with certain conceptions of the world. Right? Judaism is not primarily a faith, it's primarily a tribal identity. This might also be getting, uh, uh, be sort of what Richard's getting at is that, you know, it's not, it's what we're talking about also is that the religion produces the type as opposed to the race, uh, as, as opposed to the religion being a kind of, um, What's the word? Uh, uh, Excretion of the race. Like, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I would say the, the opposite is much more true. Like a particular people will develop, you know, a particular understanding of reality. So let's, let's posit the religious faith statement that God came down and gave the Torah to the Jews. But what the Jews then do with the Torah and how they implement it, how they study it, how they practice it, right? How they make it real and concrete in their lives can have a whole lot to do with the proclivities and talents and gifts of this particular people rather than theological conceptions that are shaping this uh, particular race. Uh, yeah, the, the idea that uh, the, the old like sort of DR trope that like culture comes from race, right? We're, we're, say, we're actually saying the, uh, the reverse. That, uh, really... Yeah, I would say the old DR trope then is much more accurate. Culture forms race. Yes. Now it may it may uh, there you could argue that there's a kind of chicken and egg relationship there, right? Because part of what we're trying to form, um, we're trying to uh, recapture on some in some on some level we're trying to reca recapture uh, an ancestor or founder type, but we're but we're trying to even improve on that, right? Because we uh -huh. want a type that is uh, that is able to sustain civilization, sustain itself, and even improve itself, right? Um, you know. Yes. Not something that uh, JF would like, I don't think, because it seems like he's, he's anti... Uh, JF got repeat. Yeah, he does seem to be a very some curious way. Um, but we're going to have to compete with the AI. We're, <laughs> we're going to have to coexist and compete with the AI. <laughs> I right? need to actually read his book. Yeah. I a also, revolutionary I phenotype. A huge... G'day mate, 40 here, so they're rehearsing for some hard rock concert in the background and I had a hilarious live video going about, you know, an Australian Christmas carol. You know, Aussies get ready for Christmas. And uh, just as I was going live, you know, the hard driving rock just ended. But uh, at the botanical gardens here in Sydney, got some hard driving rock in the background as they rehearse for a big show. And thinking about how Richard Spencer has been on a tear the last few months, talked about how Republicans can't win without embracing the crazy. Right? Only by embracing the, the crazy can they can they win. And Right. That's fun, right? That's not the type of talking point you're going to get on Fox News. Uh, and uh, Richard tends to state his opinions with, with great passion and he sense that he really believes what he's saying. But uh, what, what exactly does Richard know about winning? And I can't claim that I know a whole heck of a lot about, about winning either. But uh, Richard does not have a track record of winning. He has a track record of losing. Almost every project he starts is 
that gone downhill into the trash can. So Marjorie Taylor Greene, who Richard absolutely despises, right? Richard says, you like Christian nationalism? Christian nationalism means reign by people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> Which is a great line. Very thought provocative comment. <laughs> but you can despise her what you like. That Marjorie Taylor Greene seems to be in a pretty powerful position. She's in good with Kevin McCarthy. She's on tap to sit in some powerful House committees. She won a resounding re-election. She has you know, tempered some of the anti-Jewish things she used to say. Now she's condemning Nick Fuentes' anti-Semitism. So she's learning how to play the game. It reminds me of Robert Moses. Right? There's a classic book about Robert Moses. It came out in the 1970s and he was started out as such a young idealist and as a pure idealist he wasn't very successful he just had failure after failure then when he accepted the direction of democratic governor Al Smith and he was willing to listen to people more experienced than him in the ways of winning in politics he became a tremendous power broker Robert Moses became perhaps the most powerful man in New York City government over the course of 50 years. He learned to play the game, learned to take advice, learned to take direction, learned to humble himself, to listen to people who might know more than he did, and he became a winner. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, she's no Robert Moses, but she's humbled herself to listen to other people She's learning how to play the game, and she seems to be doing it effectively, while Lauren Bobert, who used to seem like the far more sane version of Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Lauren Bobert just barely, barely, barely won re-election. So her success in politics does not depend upon the rationality of your ideology. It does not depend on the beauty of your prose, the profundity of your thought. Right? There are a lot else figures into winning in politics beyond being able to mount you know, comprehensive and thoughtful political philosophy. I mean, just from my outside perspective, it sure seems to me like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is winning and Richard Spencer's had to subvert his ideology and turn it into a religion, Apollonianism, which is, you know, a more socially acceptable form of Nazism, but uh, trying to do it under the disguise of religion so that he won't attract as much criticism and opposition. So he's learned to play by the rules of normal society so to that extent, that's, that's a win for him. His life seems easier. He seems much happier. He seems much more well-balanced. He seems much more sober. He's cut way back on the alcohol. But uh, he's essentially been driven out of politics. And so he is trying to channel his talents into forming a new religion. He's 
actually a fun and compelling political commentator. And so he does bring the contrarian hot takes on a regular basis in Twitter spaces and on his Substack. And that's where he's so good. So I think it's vitally important that we put ourselves and other people in the correct genre. So it's... Uh Well, that's going to do it for me. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.